welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts off the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout hits, legendary classics, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that could be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films may come about when you look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey. A journey, and this time is a return to the multi-character, multi-environment, multi-approach world of American uh, legendary director Robert Altman. Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And before we delve in onto the second half of this guy's epic career, uh, I just want to make some Director's Club housekeeping notes. I know that the releases of DC episodes have been a little scant lately, but there's some things that we're preparing that uh, we wanted to go and give hints about. One is that there is a massive multi-parter that we are, uh, we're very much looking forward to and we want to deliver out for you guys. We're going to keep it a little, little under wraps right now. And we have an announcement that we put together our podcast onto a YouTube channel. If you go and do searches online for Directors Club Podcast and we should come up and we will we are have a episode uh, already uh with each individual film of the work of Orson Welles that uh and we're planning to go and release on a regular basis on this channel that you guys will be able to watch, listen and comment on. Now, the watching, we're not going to we're not quite doing video yet of ourselves but it will have uh images and clips for uh to accompany what we're saying but we feel that youtube is a really nice avenue towards getting these impressions out there in a different way so we have to get used to what they they say on youtube which is uh, subscribe like Hit the bell, all that good stuff. Exactly right. <laughs> so we were, right. It's a, a learning experience for us, and we hope that you um, uh, can check that out and get a chance to listen to Director's Club in that format. And we really do appreciate all of you listening and hope that you'll join us there and do tell your friends and make the movie world larger. Exactly. But back to the subject at hand. When we last left director Robert Altman, he had just finished rele releasing a, the studio film Popeye, a film whose box office and critical popularity led to Altman really at the odds of almost having a career in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, he ran through a very unfortunate bit of timing for Popeye because... It wasn't a flop. It re it actually did make a profit. It received mixed reviews, but because there was such an expectation for Popeye to be this huge thing, an expectation from people who clearly have never seen a Robert Altman film, when it wasn't, when it underperformed, Hollywood started looking at Altman very side-eyed. But but something else was going on at the same time, which was that the entire culture of New Hollywood was dying. 
New Hollywood, uh, as we mentioned in part one of our Robert Altman discussion, was a movement that started in the late 60s with such directors as uh, Altman, Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, all these guys we associate with great 70s cinema, basically taking over the Hollywood industry, making it a director-led industry. But then one of their number, a, a certain Michael uh, Cimino, yeah. made, uh, made a movie called Heaven's Gate, which uh, did not just bomb, but bombed extraordinarily. Proved to be the ruin of United Artists, and ironically sent many of these directors' careers to the gates of heaven. <laughs> right. So, so Heaven's Gate was the moment that, that marked the end of this freedom that directors had and Popeye not meeting expectations along with that was just signaling Robert Altman's creativity control, his instinct towards uncommercial and strange projects was not going to fly anymore. So Altman now finds himself without a budget, but he has an idea. He is going to shift his focus from traditionally made films to small independent films based on plays, and in many cases, filmed as plays. The first of which is a film called Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, released in 1982. Set in the Woolworth's Five and Dime store of a small Texas town where the movie Giant was filmed, Sandy Dennis and Cher play two members of a James Dean fan club, reuniting 20 years after their idol's death. Memories of that fateful time may not be reliable, especially with regards to a stranger played by Karen Black who pays the store a visit. Altman took on this film project only after working and directing on the same project in the theater itself. He had already worked with most of the same cast and had some innovative ideas of set design on stage and moved it into this production, which as soon as you see it, you see there's a difference in filming style because it all takes place in one room in this Woolworths, but it takes place over two timelines. It's the uh, present day of the mid-70s, and then 20 years earlier in the 50s when all the actresses were playing younger people. And he does this in a very creative way, he, which he took from the stage production, is with the use of a one-way mirror, he's able to segue from the present day to the flashbacks without cutting. 
Uh, right. When behind in the one wall of the Woolworths is this mirror, and then when, at certain points when a character is reminiscing, uh, it's lit in a certain manner to illuminate what's going on behind the other side of the mirror, in which the store's images are reversed uh, um, as if it's a reflection, but the people on there are really there in their younger in their younger guises. It's a very innovative technique, uh, I imagine, especially so in the theater, and something that has not really been seen in film either, so that translation happens to work quite nicely. Here, it, this film very much comes across as a film play for me. There are certain things in... It can be very difficult sometimes for a film to... Um, for a film to present itself as just a story and not be uh, not get, and you just not having the sense that these are people on stage <laughs> and it didn't quite do that for me at certain times such as they like much like Barney Miller <laughs> they never go outside this place <laughs> and there's just a faded dusty backdrop whenever you open the the screen door <laughs> uh, that so that and constantly when people are out run, going outside and pointing like look there's this stuff happening, and like, and like, would it have killed Altman to have a exterior shot? Maybe it, but maybe it would have. Maybe it just was not in the cards. Well, I think it was also a creative decision, and there's definitely a suspension of disbelief required any time you go into a filmed stage play situation. Uh, an example uh, we talked about in the John Frankenheimer discussion was the Iceman Cometh where Frankenheimer pretty much worked in the same limitations. Moving forward, you could look at a, a Lars von Trier movie like Dogville uh, as a way that very specifically uses stage limitations as a creative decision. Yes. Um, Dogville, on the, uh, on the other hand, though, uses it explicitly, explicitly makes the point of saying that it's to make the idea of the divisions between people are, artifi are artificial. <laughs> and so it's using the artifice to, to, to make a point. Here, it's not quite doing that, except possibly to say that there is, that this place, this location was a cauldron for these disparate individuals <laughs> to unite in the past and then fracture in the present day. Yeah, it's a combination of creativity and practicality. One imagines that if Altman were given an unlimited budget, he might do other things. But he took his limitations and pretty much ran with it, because this is going to be the first of four movies that are basically going to be filmed stage plays. It also changes... Uh, this also forces him to forego another one of his creative instincts, which is his knack for improvisation, which we talked about a lot in earlier Altman films. But when he's doing these plays, he's really going to be sticking right to the script of the playwright. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. The, the continually overlapping dialogue and, and sense of providing just a chaotic, um, I, I, uh, not chaotic. Uh, the sense of prov uh, the sense of providing a a complicated world of interaction where you're not necessarily meant to focus on this or that, but your mind is left to look look uh, look in on this or that detail. 
that's a little uh, that's a little absent on this one. I I feel, and uh, when when a character is talking uh, often in a uh, extended monologue, it's mostly presented with that character with reaction shots. It's yeah, in many ways, it's it is a, the conventional presentation by Altman standards. But he still manages to include a number of Altman touches, and in this and pretty much all the films we'll be discussing, he has this very deliberate use of the zoom, where he more obviously than most directors takes you in tight into either a character or uh, an object that he wants you to pay attention to. This film slash play is probably most known for being the debut of Cher as a dramatic actress, who at this point would only have been known from her music and Sonny and Cher persona, but this is basically the start of a decade-long run that would end up getting her an Oscar, and I think she's really good. She has some revelations in the film that uh, she delivers with great feeling, and considering the even more extreme transformations of some of her co-stars, she's sort of the grounding element of the film. The way Cher acts in her role and her character is of a very kind of direct, uh, sort of sardonic sense of humor to things. And it's quite different than when Karen Black makes the scene. And Karen Black has the way of, has the way of holding herself and revealing things and holding things back that is sort of a measure of control and presence that is significantly different than like the kind of more, like as you said, the more grounding that Cher mm-hmm. has. And on the other side of things, in every sense of the word, um, if Cher is a more grounding, naturalistic per, uh, presence that doesn't show a lot of theatricality, Andy Dennis makes up for that from the entire cast's worth <laughs> by putting altogether way too much theatricality. Her character uh, goes through some real emotional switchbacks b- back and forth and goes to some uh, uh, odd psychological places that, unfortunately, she depicts by moving her body and face in a manner that, like an animatronic which has broken down. <laughs> <laughs> she cannot stand still in her film and so if the camera's held on her for a moment, uh, you can expect a smile for no reason, or her baring her teeth, or sticking her tongue out, <laughs> or any number of, of theatrical affectations. I, I really found her stuff incredibly annoying, hmm. and this combined with her, in my opinion, equally bad performance in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf just makes it a really weird parallel, especially when you consider... Um, deceptions about children are also a very prominent right. <laughs> connection between those two. I mean, what did you think of Mrs. Dennis? I thought she was excellent. And I think the number one reason to check out this film is the consistently great performances, I'd say, from the entire cast. Now, I could see where Sandy Dennis could seem off-putting because she's playing an extremely disturbed person. As many Altman characters will be, she has delusions about her state in life, about her past, about people in her life. 
But unlike more traditional characters, her delusions really do reach the state of psychosis. And so all those mannerisms are there, but I think they're appropriate for a character who truly is living in another world. And she's conveying both emotion and disconnection through all these theatrical means. Yeah, her mannerisms got me to get her disconnected from humanity. In a film that I already felt was limited by moments which are clearly part of its theatrical limitations, I found her mannerisms were to play in the cheap seats that this woman is messed up. Sandy Dennis has a son. We do not see the son, but he is often referred to, and per its theatrical limitations, he's assumed to be outside driving around at a number of points. Right. But she claims that he is the son of uh, James Dean, whom she had an, an affair with. Which, during... by the way, I just have to point out, her reluctance to allow for a person named Dean to go driving around... Yes. It's kind of understandable <laughs> on a couple different levels. <laughs> yes. So she claims that they had a one-night stand. We are we we as an audience are skeptical of this seeing kind of her demeanor. We we really can't imagine this has gone down the way she said. But Sandy Dennis is completely convinced that this is James Dean's child. I don't think she's making it up. She's delusional about it. I think that delusion and the return of her lover creates opportunity for a lot of, I, I think what's the specialty of these kind of pieces, is very emotional revealing of deepest, darkest secrets. Yeah, there is a key prop of where Sandy Dennis keeps a model of the set of a James Dean movie, which turns out to just be the front, in which the back is, you can see the cardboard of the pretty facade. <laughs> this incredibly on-the-nose device is basically done to illuminate how all the different characters have a particular facade, a, th a way that they present what they want themselves to be or what they wish for that is hiding a hiding a more miserable reality this is a psychological this every bit of a psychological wasteland as the last uh, picture show was an economic and social wasteland right and and even though this is from the imagination of the playwright ed uh, grasick it's fascinating how that theme recurs so often in altman Hmm, that's an interesting. That's that's interesting. What would you think would be the ultimate example of that of the film so far? Images does that, I believe. In fact, facades almost become literal in that film. <laughs> three women is about all. Oh, three women is very literally, much about, and and, and yes. with almost the same level of delusion. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's a, that's a really good. Point. I think we have characters in Nashville who believe themselves to be one thing when we may see them as something else. 
Right, and then and then the the ending of Nashville. Someone is turns out to be a star who wasn't before, mm-hmm. and it's a great irony that now people see them in a different way. So, hmm, now that's a really good, that's a really cool point. Um, for friendships across history, um, for for what each lady wants from the other person, and how it can get toxic. Really quick, when when what had united people back then is is just becomes a vestige uh, now in such a in effect a, a way in a, such a wasteland place, which I feel like maybe Altman gives a little bit of that away with a one of his more haunting credits, which even Quintet is not as desolate as the as the credit side of the store. Now we've just dust, completely empty, and just the howling of the wind uh, clattering through this, clattering through the screen door. So we're not through with desolate locations, which will once again appear in Streamers, released in 1983. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend I you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction Basic training is over and the barracks are tense as four soldiers await the news of when they'll be shipped off to Vietnam. Two middle-class young men, one black and one white, become fast friends, but remain in denial when another buddy comes out as gay. A fourth soldier, a poor African-American recruit from the streets, might be the spark of an already heated fuse of race and sexuality. Now, I myself was not able to give this film a viewing, but and I'm sorry I that happened because I am very, very curious as what does it mean for Altman to return to a military setting now 10 years plus after MASH? Yes, he's back in the military, but it really couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. It's still like Five and Dime. We are on a single stage set piece this time the barracks we uh see a little bit of some other rooms but we're we're pretty much in one room and we're it's based on a play by david rabe and so the content is that of the play he there's no cute uh callbacks to the mash days and the Feeling is very different because where everyone in MASH is responding to the horrors of wartime by letting loose, acting out, and playing all manner of pranks and aggressiveness, here here the aggressiveness is much more tightly wound because they're not yet in war. These are these are kids who are waiting to be sent. And so they are nervous and upset anyway. And then things that they don't understand basically 
enter into into their world. So you have uh, my nemesis, Matthew Modine, <laughs> <laughs> who is actually very good here. He as was not kind of worst. A, he was not worst of all. Not this time. Okay. Ma- Matthew Modine, I, I have uh, generally disliked in many other things. But uh, when with Altman, I make an exception. He is kind of the all-American young guy, uh, the, the jock, and... His buddy is played by David Allen Greer, which most people know from his comedic turns in In Living Color. He plays complete drama in this one. And so they're trying to form this this traditional bond. And then this third recruit, uh, played by uh, Mitchell Lichtenstein, is a gay man. And unusually for the time set in uh, the Vietnam era, he is he is pretty out about it, even though one would imagine there could be consequences in the military for that. Their response is interesting. Their response is to be like, ah, you joker. We get it. You're constantly joking that you're gay. We, we know you're not, but hmm. nice joke, eh? <laughs> Okay, so every character has this level of denial of Sandy Dennis, perhaps. Somewhat, yeah. They, they, they will not see the, the man right in front of their faces until uh, the, this fourth character, excellently uh, played by Michael Wright, uh, comes into the picture. And he is a little more street than uh, the David Allen Greer character, but he, he feels like because they're both black that they, they would bond. He eventually becomes more and more aggressive with the other three and starts to bond in what would be considered a surprising way to the others with the Richie character, the, the, the gay character in the barracks. Hmm. This leads to kind of like we were talking about with, with five and dime as secrets are revealed, the consequences of them, the stakes keep rising. We also follow a couple of older recruits who have already seen some action and are now back at the barracks on leave, getting ready for their next tour, they are completely changed. And their response is also kind of not to see what's going on in this uh, with these new recruits because they have this different experience. The streamers in the title refer- refers to uh, a parachute that does not open. Ah, okay. <laughs> Which you would recommend that the people view? Absolutely. The hmm. acting is phenomenal. Keep in mind that as a stage play, it's going to have some of those same limitations we discussed in Five and Dime. Mm-hmm. But if you want to see just real issues explored in an intelligent and nuanced way, th- this is really worth your time. Cool. But for now, we're going to be talking to a person dealing with a wartime situation and some incredibly serious mental issues of his own (laughs) in his next film, Secret Honor, released in 1984. Radio. 
At some point after resigning the presidency, Richard M. Nixon is alone in his home, continually drinking and getting ready to record his thoughts for posterity, speaking into tapes that he can barely operate and being observed by his own personal surveillance system. Nixon ends up revealing rather far more than intended as his memories uncover conspiracies that were never made public. If you don't know Philip Baker Hall from this film, it's likely you may know him from his films with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, specifically Hard Eight and Magnolia. I love Hard Eight. He's a wonderful <laughs> character. And we could thank this movie for that because... Secret Honor is one of P.T. Anderson's favorites, and when he saw it, he said, I gotta get this guy. And and he is not wrong. What uh, Philip Baker Hall does in playing Nixon is masterful. He does not do an impression. He doesn't do the kind of mannerisms we often uh, associate with Nixon. And he even only looks a little like him with the, the slick back hair and whatnot. But what he does is capture a spirit of, I think, what so many people suppose Nixon might be like. And so he's very much a Nixon of people's imaginations there's a uh before the movie starts there's some uh text that indicates that this is a work of fiction but wow it really does seem to capture so much of that public perception richard nixon's known nowadays as our second most horrifically corrupt and evil president and with regards to these Two awful presidents. It just leads me to this question, which kind of had influenced my impression on this film, is that Nixon was treated as this big, complex figure that was full of contradictions, and and people were trying to just explain why he had tur why he had done all these reprehensible deeds. And nowadays, we're encountering a person whose reasons for doing awful things cannot be more simple and straightforward. And it leads just leads me to just think that maybe it kind of was that simple. And oh and and I just it's just a mindset that I had when I'm watching Secret Honor that leads me to just ask what is the value of looking at the complexities of of a horrible figure like Nixon as opposed to just saying he's a bastard and let's keep people like him out of office. <laughs> It's so interesting that that was kind of a takeaway because with this movie and with Oliver Stone's Nixon, some of the criticisms have been that they, they humanize Nixon too much, mm -hmm. that you start to relate to him more and more, which in, in my mind is actually good for drama whether it's good history or not probably probably not right. but for but for for drama nixon has become this almost citizen kane type figure to the point where stone echoes citizen kane's opening in the opening shot of his nixon movie and i think this same incredibly complex nixon is presented here He's the only actor in the entire film. Unlike Altman's usual uh, cast of thousands, we're down to one man alone. 
And unlike the current evil we're dealing with, this is somebody who self-reflection is almost a obsession with. There are a number of factors contributing to what Philip Baker Hall's Nixon is going through and why it's such a compelling watch, which is, A, that he's just gone through something no other president has, which is being removed from office. B, he's a bitter guy to begin with. We get this from the way he interacts with the pictures on the wall, when the way he sees John F. Kennedy's picture and he's like, uh, you were the man, you had all the luck, you were the one everyone admired, who he then compares to his own brother. By the same token, we see him interacting with a, a picture of his mother, who he claims basically treated him like a dog. So you have that kind of deep-seated pain. He's also getting very, very drunk as the movie goes on. It makes a point of him continuing to drink and drink to where his inhibitions are compromised. Eventually, he just lets out because the invention of the film are the secrets he's hiding that have nothing to do with Watergate and what was eventually made public. But what so many people assume about people in power and probably about Nixon in particular is that he is controlled by this conspiracy. And according to this movie, he is, but he can never talk about it. And so in his mind, that's where the title of The Secret Honor is, is that by being brought down how he was, he never revealed his true crimes. So he's got this toxic mixture of guilt, righteous indignation, anger, and regret all boiling up in this pot that makes basically a 90-minute monologue into something I found completely enthralling. Yeah, I want to add on that, that I, my ambiguity upon why am I watching this is not brought out by Philip Baker Hall's performance, which is indeed Titanic. He is asked to do a hell of a lot in this film, and he, and um, the play I, it was based on, and he handles that with aplomb of a guy who's who experiences everything from loquacious talk about the de uh, details of foreign policy to very strange ramblings and up to odd having odd noises of fumbles fall, uh, falling on the ground <laughs> and random screaming <laughs> he this is a person who has to be all has to go kind of all over the place in this uh, single setting and i also want to note that Altman after Popeye, if you look at the films, at least from Five and Dime compared to Secret Honor, I get this feeling that Altman was a little snake bit and or unfamiliar with translating a play to a film, and he just gets better. 
Mm -hmm. because, and you see more and more shades in Secret Honor of the old school Altman. He's doing these things with the camera to not just make things dynamic. That doesn't feel like, a, even though it's one place, it does not feel like a play the way uh, Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean was. Very true. And Altman's curiosity upon the spaces next to people is becoming more and more apparent. As Nixon is raging, you get a little aside to a glass. Just pay, almost like the glass is patiently waiting for him. And there is an occasional movement as, as uh, down to the desk where a gun is uh, prominently uh, located. And the use on surveillance is a really cool observation that I, even though I'm not 100% certain it's relevant to Nixon. Again, this is maybe my ignorance on history, but I'm not sure about how absolutely self-involved and self-evaluating himself Nixon really was. I don't know how much that was in the film as an in, in indulgence. The, um, the idea that you're here to look at a look at Nixon. The one thing we know about the historic Nixon is that in the White House, he taped himself constantly. And that's one of the things that brought him down, is that there were these tapes of all these incriminating conversations. So we know the real-life Nixon had an inclination towards that. What, uh, what Secret Honor does is, perhaps imaginatively, take that to the next logical level. So we have him, even after he's out of the White House, continuing to use use what really is a, a security cameras, but he's got them trained on himself so that we at times aren't just seeing... And, and by the way, this is Altman's edition. This was not in the original play. We're seeing Nixon at times through these video cameras. Again, I'm not 100% certain that Nixon's taping ultimately ended up in a matter of self-reflection, more along the sense that of ego. The idea, right. that, <laughs> the idea that, oh, what I'm doing these, I'm doing these big things, and there should always be a record of the things that I managed to do. But not only does the film look at this angle of self-reflection, but also looks at the sort of unpleasant and uh, curdling effects of maybe too much self-reflection. Right. For one thing, I want to point out that like Altman's camera is not just moving, but it's moving in a specific way that at times really nicely evokes the fact that you might be thinking that Nixon himself is being put, put under surveillance in a way that echoes Francis Ford Coppola's great film, The Conversation, yes. and the camera choices and movements that happen there. Mm -hmm. And... In a detail that I find flat-out brilliant in terms of talking about surveillance, he has a bank of cameras that eventually trains on himself. He trains all the cameras. So you are seeing four Nixons. This idea of constantly getting hit by your own image over and over and over again and what it's doing to your psyche as you watch it is real, I, something I find a, a great touch if you think about it and 
leads to an incredibly fascinating final shot. Because Nixon unleashes what has to be a primal scream that is then shown in a surveillance footage one time after the other, after mm-hmm. the other, after the other. <laughs> yes, it's it's quite the moment. And, and thematically, it really works because we think self-reflection is obviously a, a, a positive thing for people to have. But if it becomes obsession, if it becomes anything taken to the extreme can become very much a problem. And so we have this insecurity and the ego colliding in the self-reflection, which then becomes physical through the use of Nixon's image in the various cameras repeated over and over again. So Altman, just because he's doing a play, is not forgetting to be a film director. He's taking these he he's taking these things that you would not imagine would be cinematic and translating them into the language of cinema. Mm-hmm. He is getting back into Altman type territory, mm-hmm. into his into the style of filmmaking that that he is aware of and getting more comfortable in showing even theatrically originated stories. And I would say if you're just going to see one of the Altman theater pieces, this is the one to see. Now, from Secret Honor, his next series of films move across from all sorts of uh, types, genres, and even media, and in a way we can best represent by giving it to you guys in the lightning round. Which will start with Fool for Love, released in 1985. May thought she could get away from her longtime lover, Eddie, by hiding out in a dingy western motel in the middle of nowhere. Eddie, a cowboy stuntman, has found her, and all the pain and passion of their storied history has come back, witnessed only by a mysterious older man and May's meek suitor. Although also a theatrical adaptation uh, based on Sam Shepard's acclaimed play, Altman discovers the outdoors. Yes. <laughs> and so we're, we, we're still very limited, but we're limited now in a way that encompasses a, a very interesting set design, which are the, is this motel with uh, a series of independ- independently standing rooms all dressed in pink neon. And as we get a wide shot of this area, it becomes clear that this is all there is in this 
desert area. There seems to be nothing else for miles. So the the setting is just as isolating as the characters themselves. Yes, you would never. I don't feel you would ever guess that this was a play. He's so his transform his ability to expand on a theatrical landscape has reached a great uh, level in this in this film. Just the way he depicts the rooms, the people through glass, through reflections in this shabby place is gets is is in a measure of the cinematic of what of what film can do. I I look at this in relation to images and much like the cheesy aphorism that I once read off a of fortune cookie that said <laughs> three can keep a secret if two are dead. <laughs> a headspace drama can be much better when there's two people involved as opposed with the single person in images where the, where every other character may or may not exist. Right. <laughs> but here since it's a this is a very interesting dynamic, a love hate love hate I hate to love you and love to hate you dynamic between Kim Basinger and Sam Shepard uh, play, uh, playing the role that he had written. There is a, a surreal element to Fool for Love that reminded me of Three Women. Yes, it uh, has that as well. As well as a desert setting, which it has in common. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it is about the kind of revelations that, that the characters are trying to get away from and yet can't avoid that, to me, is a, a make it an interesting film to view with the light of the Tracy Let's Play made into a movie by William Freakin called Bug. Hmm. Also set in a very desolated mo motel where revelations get quite, can get apocalyptic. <laughs> um, and I'll say, I'll say the, the two perform, the two main performances are Shepard is actually just great as a person who has to be, um, a, a real danger. Uh, really emotionally wounded by what happens, and also has some really fascinating, goofy moments as well. Altman has said that he would not have made the film if Shepard hadn't agreed to be in it, and 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 he does he does really really well. Whether it's through angrily glaring as he's viewing May through a window, or using a hat on a stick to have a sarcastic conversation <laughs> with another character, he totally wins out. Basinger, on the other hand is really, really trying, but she's not quite transcending her beautiful woman who happens to act in movies' roots. L.A. Confidential is going to happen quite a bit later. The role was originally intended for Jessica Lange, who's in a relationship with Sam Shepard at the time. She could not take the role. Now, I, I, I think Kim Basinger is good. She doesn't really transcend... But she captures, I, I feel like, what she needs to capture here without being extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think in this case, it's an example of where Altman's ability to kind of push us a little off balance in the sense of where are these people, both in the lives they have in the movie and also psychologically, in a way that does echo images and three women but gives it a cowboy tinge mm -hmm. to it in a way that I found really, really enjoyable. But then I really, really like the way those are th those things are explored in Three Women. So I like a return to his ideas in Fool for Love. But his next film cannot be more different. He's deconstructed a whole bunch of films until now. 
What's he gonna do with disconstructing the teenage sex adventure comedy in O.C. and Stiggs, released in 1985? O.C. and Stiggs are not your typical suburban teenagers, because their particular brand of nonconformity involves an all-out war of pranks against the upper-middle-class Schwab family. With the help of a homeless wino, a crazed Vietnam vet, and the world's ugliest car, this lovable pair embark upon their mission to offend. So now we reach the part of our podcast where Robert Altman loses his damn mind. <laughs> he goes all secret honor on us. He, he, what the hell happened here? Because it will be this and the next movie where any kind of filmmaking instinct that we know he has as a master pretty much goes out the window. But it, I think it happens for a very specific reason. When you watch Mel Brooks parodies, uh, especially the most acclaimed ones, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, you definitely get the sense that one of the reasons they're so funny and work so well is because he really loves the genres that he's taking on. Altman has admitted, and if, if he hadn't, it would be very clear from the results, that he cannot stand teen comedies. Oh. He <laughs> thinks that they are utterly worthless. And so it's kind of a shame that the word trolling wasn't in vogue back in the 80s because that's that's what he ends up doing here. He is he is mocking the conventions but not in a clever way, in a really ugly and obvious way. First of all by giving us two protagonists that we could give not a damn about. To this day, I could not tell you which one is O.C. and which one is Stiggs. In a world where Ferris Bueller exists, these are generic non-entities of teenagers with a, with a stupid mission. Their idea is to basically take down this family who, A, from the point of view of the director, represents Reagan America's uh, conservative uh. Uh, upper middle class wealth and also has done some injustice to their uh, father, played by Ray Walston. But we don't even go too far into that. We basically see them embarking on MASH-type pranks to make this family's life living hell. Good point on the MASH hijinks, and it reminds me about, like, my ambivalence towards that film, and that, yeah, they're kind of all jerks. To me, the film comes across in a way that might be, make me sound uncharitable on my part, but it actually comes across as a the efforts of a 50-year-old man to try to make a teen comedy when he clearly has no idea what is fun or interesting about a teen comedy. He's hitting a lot of similar notes that you see from films like Caddyshack mm -hmm. and, and specifically Animal House. And I can see if uh, if you were just from a different generation and you look at Animal House and you're like, these guys are all antisocial jerks. 
okay, I can do antisocial jerks. I did mash. <laughs> Why not just uh, show it this way? And there is, they have a, a dedication to an African band, uh, King Sunny Ade, that, re uh, that harkens back to the band that was playing Shout during the infamous Toga Party at Animal House. And he does some movements which show a bit of an indulgence, like he really likes that car. It's like as if it's like as if the the scooter that Jeff Goldblum rides from Nashville <laughs> became a main character. In this, it definitely has more personality, even in its sheer ugliness, than the than the two right. <laughs> that are riding it. Um, it's sort of a monster truck Trans Am type atrocity. <laughs> I think they call it a Gila monster. A Gila monster, yes. <laughs> and there's a moment where it's, if it was on rails at any point, it clearly throws the rails away at the end with, they bring in some helicopter footage, which uh, involves the uh, Dennis Hopper's veteran character behaving in a very twisted way as if the... Uh, an Apocalypse Now character broke through the wall of this teen comedy? Well, literally. I mean, he is playing the exact same characterizations as Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. So you have, in addition to all the other problems, this uh, a couple weird efforts to get meta in this film, most obviously with, uh, with Dennis Hopper's character. Yeah. But also, for those who are fans of Altman, he shouts out from his worst movie to what many consider his best movie, Nashville, by bringing back the character of... Hal Philip Walker, the politician from Nashville who we never saw, but we constantly heard through loudspeakers talking uh, inanities uh, with regards to his presidential election. Now we see Hal Philip Walker on television. He just seems like a anonymous old dude. And he's brought in because apparently Paul Dooley's conservative father is a big fan, which is another reason for our characters uh, to disdain him. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, ultimately, the biggest indication on how Altman may have felt is when they go to Mexico, which not only leads to a guy saying, we don't need no sticking badges a la Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but features their idiot sidekick getting lost in a maze for minutes at a time. <laughs> yeah, there's the s structure to the film is, is non-existent. Yeah. And it goes off the rails in a way that kind of reminded me a little bit of the way 1941 right. goes off the rails. But to be clear, 1941 is a much better movie than this. Right. <laughs> but it also gives goes to show you that... There one combination I would say that Spielberg and Altman have in common, we can find in Ocean Stigs in 1941. That gaping void where you go, oh God, there's nothing funny that's going to come out of this. <laughs> well, that becomes very clear. And uh, unfortunately, it will become just as clear in Altman's next film, 1987's Beyond Therapy, released in 1987. Encouraged by their respective psychiatrists to take out personal ads, Prudence and Bruce's first date only hints at the insanity of their relationship as sexual identity and former lovers complicate this already complicated pairing. 
So we're back to play territory for Altman. Uh, this is based on a Christopher Durang play. Christopher Durang, it turned out, was none too happy with how this adaptation turned out, and I think uh, really neither was I. Okay. You, you didn't get a chance to see it, though, I believe. <laughs> I will say that much like uh, streamers, I did not get a chance to see it. But I mostly don't regret that I did. <laughs> yes, unlike streamers, that was probably the correct move because, like O.C. and Stiggs, this attempted comedy does no favors to the material, to the actors, or to anyone. Uh, I could best describe it by describing the opening scene, which is basically the most awkward first date since Minnie and Moskowitz. <laughs> It is. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum and Julie Haggerty are in the restaurant uh, doing small talk when, uh, kind of out of nowhere, Goldblum compliments Haggerty on her lovely breasts. You know, normal first date talk, mm -hmm. which she seems to not really even notice and just lets it kind of pass. And then he just as casually mentions that he swings both ways. Now, this gets her attention in, which is a really striking line of dialogue uh, to my uh, 2019 ears, in which says, oh, yes, I just hate homosexuals. Oh. And he barely seems to notice this comment. A few minutes later, he's sucking on her toes in the middle of the restaurant. That kind of disjointed storytelling pretty much goes on throughout the entire piece. And probably what's most interesting about it uh, is its views on homosexuality, which, which are confusing, because I honestly wasn't sure if this is some kind of a gay panic piece from the 80s or some effort to actually be progressive but because it's the 80s they didn't quite know how uh, later on we're introduced to uh christopher guest who is uh goldblum's uh past romantic involvement and he is doing the uh jack from will and grace gay character Oh, the over-the-top nature? Yeah, very, okay. very, very much so. Uh, we also have uh, Glenda Jackson and Tom Conti as uh, their two therapists, and kind of much is made of the uh, of a, the joke of therapy as a as a concept, I guess. Yeah, it almost <laughs> sounds like that they're that from their first interaction that they got the advice to be as absolute forthright with their number one neurosis as possible as a way of clearing the air or something. I don't know. Right. There's a lot of problems here, and, it, and it's not just with the offensiveness, but with the filmmaking itself. Again, like O.C. and Stiggs, we have a, a failure in basic storytelling. Huh. The one thing I can say about hearing about Goldblum in this is he was quirk a quirky guy who who said some really awful things in an absolutely wonderful comedy that came about roughly about the same time mm -hmm. called The Tall Guy. Yes. Uh, directed by Mel Smith and starring a very young and very, very funny Emma Thompson. Um, it is a, a wonderfully charming and, and hilarious movie with a 
dead on parody of an Andrew Lloyd Webber type take on the elephant man. <laughs> it is it is a magnificent. I would highly recommend people see that. Yes, far a far better option than this one. So throughout the 80s, Altman had also done a number of films for television, which were generally not going over since this is a movie podcast, not a television podcast. Mm -hmm. But I do want to make an exception because we're going to talk soon about Altman's official comeback. But he did kind of a soft comeback. But in my mind, the real comeback is Tanner 88, released that same year and aired as a miniseries on HBO. We follow Jack Tanner, a fictional presidential candidate running in the real-life 1988 Democratic primary. Over the course of 11 episodes, we get to know the idealistic candidate, as well as his campaign staff, family, and reporters covering the chaotic up-and-downs of a presidential campaign. Tanner 88 is written by Gary Trudeau, known mostly as the creator of the Doonesbury comic strip. Now, don't let the, the briefness of this review be misleading, because if this was a theatrical film, I think we'd be spending a lot more time on it. It's really great. Now, I unfortunately have not seen either this or the previous 87 TV shows. <laughs> what would be the some of the aspects that both make this uh, um, an interesting or special effort worthy to talk about in a movie podcast and what makes you say it's his comeback. First of all, it's a return to form. He's back to a very improvisational style that served him so well in the 70s. That passion for filmmaking that Altman showed so much of in the 70s that became a lot formal, more formal in the 80s is here just allowed to be let loose because the big innovation here is how he unleashes his film on a real-life event, which is the actual presidential campaign. So he's got his cast and crew in the same places as the candidates for president are, and they even are, are meeting at certain points. Some of them have actual roles, like uh, Bruce Babbitt has a scene where he's giving advice to Tanner. They run into uh, Pat Robertson, who I don't think was aware he was going to be in a huh. movie, but they have a little interaction with him and Bob Dole and uh, most of the candidates from 1988. And they invent little dramas that occur between the fictional Jack Tanner and his real life uh, contemporaries. So he's having an affair with one of Mike Dukakis's campaign aides, or he's getting into a real feud with Jesse Jackson. <laughs> and this is all done very seamlessly, where if you didn't know that this was actually not one of the real candidates, or if you didn't know that the real candidates were not actors, you would think he's part of this actual news event. Hmm. It just kind of reminds me upon how this was also a time period where the lines between like political type celebrity and celebrity type celebrity was were starting to go and get blurred. 
it sounds like it's a little bit of a tap dance on both sides on both sides of that aisle. Well, they they talk a lot about the Gary Hart scandal as kind of a cautionary tale, and that was what many people thought was the beginning of that blurring. It's a harbinger of something else too that I know you might not be fond of, but but I am, which is. It's behind the scenes look at uh, campaign life. We follow his uh, campaign manager and staff as well as the press covering him is very much proto West Wing, proto Aaron Sorkin stuff. It, it, it's obvious that they took Tanner 88 as an influence when coming up with what has since become the definitive look at behind the scenes political life. Hmm. It, it almost seems like it would be a really good continuum uh, to watch the Michael Ritchie film *The Candidate*, which shares a, a similar intent of early Altman's for being a really toxically satirical and a, a take no prisoners attitude, albeit of a different tone than how Altman did in in his early films. In both films, you do explore what it means to kind of be the face of a campaign and the assumptions that people make about you and also the assumptions you might make about yourself because there's often a saying among uh, campaign folks that the candidate is the least important person in the campaign. Ah. And that's explored here as well as certain things just happen by accident that can either be capitalized or can lead to ruin. And we see uh, Michael Murphy reacting to these things in such a, in such an authentic way. How interesting is that this came out not too many years after secret honor, a film that is so single-minded about a multifaceted character. Mm -hmm. And this one is such a kaleidoscopic view of something where the character may be the like you said, the least nuanced thing about <laughs> what's ha about what's happening, <laughs> and also this is part of a very secret trilogy of Altman's, no quadrology, <laughs> his epic look at a system and the many many people who are both involved in the system, partly involved in the system, or carried along in the wake of said system. The first one, obviously, is Nashville. Mm -hmm. This is the second. A film we're going to talk very, very soon is the third. And uh, Ready to Wear, Prêt de Poté is the fourth. <laughs> They're all doing the that thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be curious when we get to the fourth one how they all rank for you. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we will get to that. But I just want to leave Tanner 88 with the assurance that this is classic Altman. Excellent. From there, he gets incredibly artistic with his the, with his film Vincent and Theo, released in 1990. It's the story of Vincent Van Gogh's final years as he's creating masterpieces, but living in poverty and descending into madness. Supported financially and emotionally by his brother Theo, who is a respectable art dealer who is fighting demons of his own, Vincent leaves Paris for the countryside, temporarily inspired by fellow painter Paul Gauguin. Now, this one I didn't get a chance to see, but uh, I wonder how it compares to some of the many other portrayals of Vincent van Gogh on film. I think the most notable one is the Kirk Douglas vehicle, um, Lust for Life. This film I like quite a bit more because this one varies from it in certain, in certain ways. 
One of which is that its title is important because it's about how both Vincent and Theo are flawed characters who have a symbiotic need for each other that is sometimes helpful and sometimes harmful to them both. I really like those shadings of the artist relationship to relatives who are so often either presented as A, skeptics who don't understand the, the genius's uh, greatness, or significants who are there plugging in the corner for it. This is, it's, it goes into different angles with that. There also is a moment which I think more than any other film I have seen just gets at the heart of what may explain Van Gogh's genius and mental instability at the same time, hmm. all done through a very interesting choice of ultimates. Van Gogh is well known for doing these incredibly powerfully evocative images of sunflowers. And there's a scene in the movie where he's painting these guys and he is then just like, just overcome. He starts spinning and, and falls down and, and, Altman films in a way so that these plants are swaying in a manner that almost gives it sinister. Wow. And there, there's even low-angle shots where it's like the, the flowers themselves are overlooking Vincent and, and, and oppressing them, but in a way with their beauty and, uh, and glory. So this, to me really gets this feels that ineffable quality that I get out of looking at a Van Gogh painting about how the the very brush strokes are meant to like find some powerful moment of grace or nature you know that uh brings up to me a film that we saw last year Akira Kurosawa's Dreams ah. which had a segment featuring Martin Scorsese as Vincent Van Gogh and actually walking into a set recreation of the paintings. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just want to also give a recommendation to a film called Loving Vincent, where um, which is a great cinematic experiment in its own right, where they basically animated the film by hiring hundreds of painters to try and duplicate scenes from Van Gogh's life in the very style of, of Van Gogh's paintings. And to the extent that those famous works just come alive in terms of a story that is interesting and very energizing and uplifting. But that scene, that one scene is really magnificent. And honestly, I think is worth for Vincent and Theo uh, a look and more than overcomes one of the worst things I've ever had to witness an actor continually doing is Vincent played by Tim Roth continually has his teeth black and blue by his continued propensity of sticking a brush full of paint in his mouth. Now, it turns out that this is something that the real Van Gogh did, and I don't care. <laughs> I just don't want to see it. Because, <laughs> right, no, I just don't want to see it. And it's and it maybe doesn't speak well of me, but for however well Tim Roth is acting, and I think he does a fine job, um, it's having to stare at his blue dripping teeth is never not hideous and just just makes me feel the life is draining away as I, as I have to gaze upon him so that is that is unfortunate but again that that scene alone makes it worth a look if you want to go and explore on Altman but 
The next film we're going to talk about is something that people, even with people with a cursory knowledge of film, know is an is an Altman film to keep an eye out for. His quote-unquote official comeback film, The Player. Released in 1992. Griffin Mill is a Hollywood studio executive who will need every edge to stay on top when an up-and-comer eyes his position. Matters are not helped by threatening letters from a disgruntled writer and made much worse when that writer ends up dead. Griffin will have to produce a surefire hit and dodge a murder charge if he's to remain a player. Now, as we've talked about Altman... One of the common things that comes across about him is he has this great sense of both skewing and skewering these different genres that he wants to explore. The Western in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the military uh, comedy in MASH. Here, he manages to do the idea of deconstruction I feel, in its purest form. Because here, he takes a look at the film industry, and he doesn't just satirize it. He dismantles it while showing you... It's watching someone show how crazy a magic trick is while showing you his cards all the way down. Ten years before uh, Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones did something similar in adaptation, mm, right? Altman is giving us the snake eating its own tail. <laughs> it, it, it starts out absolutely brilliantly in a long take that uh, goes through one take going through the entire credits as we're... Uh, as we're traveling down a Hollywood studio uh, boulevard, uh, peeking into offices where movie pictures are being made, meeting a lot of different characters, walking along all in one take. So that's, that's one level of, all right, great filmmaking right there. He takes it to another level by having one of the characters mention the famous long take that opens Touch of Evil, which, as the characters are discussing, we are seeing a version of. So this kind of meta, self-aware view of movie making while you're making movies is, for me, just an immense pleasure and an original way to tell a story. A similar moment happens when uh, Griffin is having a love scene with his girlfriend, and they're discussing 
about the cliches of movie love scenes. And as they're doing it, they're in a hot tub and the camera just uh, pans down to the bubbles. (laughs) So (laughs) the camera and the characters are having their own dialogue. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> They're very, very nicely put. Um, uh, Alt, in, in that uh, lovemaking scene, Altman's camera is giving a commentary track to their antics without a word being said. But it is exactly pointing out the hoariness of the, the um, situation by the very cliches that people who've seen movies have become all too familiar with. And I want to just sir, buttress your amazing point about the intro and the greatness of that beginning opening shot. Because, in a way, it is Altman, and in a way, it's not. It has this, this feeling that Altman has been able to convey through his ensemble films of being able to show all these people doing all these disparate activities. But he manages to do something, I think, really remarkable in that opening shot because there's such a precision to it. Mm-hmm. The precision is not exactly what Altman had di- done in, fil- in films from like MASH to Nashville where the, well, the camera uh, uh, is moving very well. It's really enhancing the feelings that you get out of it and is is pushing you, but and it's pushing you off balance by the idea that you don't, you're not given an obvious sign as to who to focus on. But here, in a way that maybe comments on the alienating forces at work in the film industry, he's moving in from one room to one path to focus on this person and then moving along to focus on another. And they're always keeping an absolute razor sharp precision to just illuminate this part of the film industry and this part and this part. This is why the idea of the dismantling I find so amazing in this film because I feel this kind of precision in how he does it. Just this pure direct, like I was not expecting a Kubrickian level of intent in an Altman film. And I think it brings it along. Because what I'm saying? Yeah, because Altman is so fond of improvisation you could sometimes get the impression that the the camera moves and the cinematography are somewhat accidental and just kind of following what the actors are doing. But as we've talked about that very deliberate zoom that Altman's so fond of, this is kind of that zoom multiplied throughout an entire film because every shot is deliberate as they are in most of his films, but here it's calling attention to itself. Yes. Here, here it's saying, we're going to look at the movie industry behind the scenes. While we do that, here's a bit of behind the scenes on how we're making this movie, because we're not going to let you miss what the camera's doing and how we're making a movie about making a movie. Mm-hmm. I have said on multiple occasions that I kind of feel that each movie can be like two films. One is when you don't know what's going to happen. And another is what the film is after you've seen the events that what happens 
and how what enjoyment or things you get out of watching a film on on repeat viewings. I find the first viewing on the player is exhilarating because like Kaufman in his finest works, you are on these parallel tracks mm-hmm. of being simultaneously aware that you're watching a film about people involved in in making films and then also recognizing the artificiality of it and how filmmaking, how the way film can tell a story is contrasting with the events that happen in the story. And this is a case where where uh, the Griffin Mill is, is played by Tim Robbins. And here's a case where Tim Robbins has a very ironic way, ir- ironic thing about his character. Tim Robbins has can do many, many roles quite well. But one thing that I never found him really doing well is having a guy in a position of authority, except in terms of mocking said, mm-hmm. uh, mocking said authority. So when I first saw the player, I never could quite buy that. I never could quite buy that he is a studio head, that he's the kind of, or at least how we perceive of a studio head is a guy like a like a uh, say Kirk Douglas in the Bad and the Beautiful, a guy who can bark sure. orders and yell mm-hmm. at people, and he 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 says tells them to jump, and they say how high. He doesn't come across like that, and that, I found that a little off putting at first. But as the as my viewing of the film went on, you find that that becomes a great asset because he as the story goes on, he's involved in this uh, death. He has to try and cover it up. He desperately needs to go and have a hit for the studio. And he comes across as very, very inadequate for the task. So it's a really interesting contrast between how someone with capability is able to go and get himself, extricate him out of a situation, and how a goofball would would act, or to be quite fair, Studio heads don't have, I hope they don't, have too much experience in covering up murders. <laughs> so he really would be out of his element, at least on that score. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a, a phrase, failing up, hmm. which uh, see, is often referred to in a lot of industries as why seemingly the least qualified person ends up in charge. And that's where Altman's razor-sharp cynicism really powers this film. We saw him trying to uh, use the cynicism in O.C. and Stiggs and failing at it, but when you combine his disdain for the film business that is well-earned in the way he's had to interact with Hollywood throughout his career, and especially in the 80s when he basically spent the decade denied any kind of budget whatsoever. When you combine that cynicism with the knowledge he brings to, of the movie industry Mm. from having worked in it since the fifties, you've got a really potent uh, combination. We should also give credit to Michael Tolkien who wrote the book that the player is based on. But it's because it's an Altman film that there seemingly is an 
endless number of celebrity cameos as themselves, as we see everyone from Jack Lemon to Burt Reynolds to Cher, all doing these walk-ons. Uh, some of the, some of them have worked with Altman before. Others others of them just always wanted to. And because of the Hollywood setting, he's able to bring all these people in in what is basically a hate letter to Hollywood. Right. That's a great point. <laughs> They're um, uh, taking turns, taking uh, taking uh, uh, kicks at their own industry. <laughs> I also want to note that the idea of having these walk-on parts is not just a, a way of quoting uh, like big Hollywood stars like Reynolds and Lemon, but also is something that he did very effectively with Elliot Gould and Julie Christie in Nashville. Yes. And we had already talked about how he's doing this in the political realm in Tan in Tanner eighty eight, um, whereas a film like Ossian Stiggs or Mash for that matter uh, treated its satirical intent in the idea of shoving a person face down in the mud and then giving him the finger. <laughs> Here, it is breathtaking how he uses it the satirical edge i think i i like that edge because it is a toshiro mifune samurai sword on things mm -hmm. it is so pitch perfect in moment after moment after moment from whether uh griffin mill walks past uh, a guy's legs going to see the last 10 minutes of bicycle thing right. <laughs> to to buck henry at his most perfectly like frantic uh urgently trying to argue for a sequel to the graduate which he had written but but make it funny this time which is a great repeated bit that goes on throughout is people keep wanting to pitch their movies to this guy and it's always invariably a combination of this movie and another movie <laughs> mm -hmm. exactly exactly and they bring up they bring up a particularly really cheesy premise of a of a what movie that may uh, help save the, uh, help save the studio. <laughs> and it's just this recurring motif that is also about how, oh, it's got to be Julia Roberts in the movie, and you got to have Bruce Willis as the lead. You got to have these people. You got to have them. <laughs> and, no and, and I believe it even jumps across many, even different genres. Like, oh, that's, that's a really interesting story. Can we have Julia Roberts <laughs> in it? <laughs> um, to the point, to a, one of my favorite lines in where they, where the up-and-comer says, during a meeting, goes out and says, we well, just open up the paper. And then you look at this page, and here's a human interest story. And you look at this page, and it's a tragedy. And uh, Griffin Mill's assistant goes, yeah, sure, here's the financial part that say bonds drop 5%. I think Connery would be Connery's bond. <laughs> <laughs> that satire is so methodical and so well honed in this film. And when it all comes together, it's a moment that to me harkens back to a film you would not, for at first glance, consider a relation, but American Psycho. Hmm. Not just in the way about how Griffin Mill and his would-be rival are these preening, hair-lacquered, super crisp shirt people that... They look like they're at any moment ready to whip out the um, business cards for a comparison, just like in that movie. But also in the way how the film can just 
takes those parallel tracks and then crosses them. Right. We should uh, talk about those tracks because they're really key in the storytelling. And we've been talking kind of about the movie making aspect of it. But then there's also the murder investigation because Griffin is a suspect. And as you mentioned, is uh, none too bright about handling being a suspect. Mm -hmm. But we get to uh, witness this uh, police investigation uh, led by uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Lyle Lovett (laughs) as cops who come in kind of with their own assumptions about guilt and innocence that's very thematic to the film and, and, and really asks questions about how the justice system judges certain mm-hmm. people in society. Right. And so this murder mystery proceeds on a, on, with the same level of cynicism. And then you have two kind of beacons of idealism. You have uh, a new paramour for Griffin, who is an artist played by Greta Sacchi, who's kind of avant-garde. So we kind of understand her to be uh, more authentic than Griffin and his business shark mode. Then you have two writers played by Dean Stockwell and Richard E. Grant, who are also making pitches, but their pitches are for... Uh, uh, important films, maybe even an art film, a film that uh, that is original and maybe the kind of film uh, Robert Altman would make. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's fascinating seeing, I don't want to get into the, the nitty gritty of how this happens, because it's frankly one of the best reveals I've ever seen in any film, of how these idealistic moments are corrupted as well. Yes. And it culminates in a magnificent double shocker of an ending. Something that just, when you first espy it, just literally gets you to just wake up and startlingly reassess just what the hell you were watching Mm -hmm. and just go, well, who's... And just going to make you think, well, whose, like, world is it anyway? It's a, it's a maneuver that has been done to some success in several films since then. But the player, to my mind, is one of the biggest ways of, of film inverting on itself since The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, I brought up the idea of, like, two movies, and because does the movie hold up on subsequent viewings when you know what happens and and personally i think it actually diminishes uh, diminishes quite a bit Hmm. um part of it is not the movie's fault part of it is because subsequent films like uh like some of the things that charlie kaufman has has explored have worked a similar angle and they've and they've sort of enhanced they've sort of enhanced it but ultimately i think once you once the thrill of going oh my god these are two different things going on in the movie Mm -hmm. I don't think that they bounce they bounce in on themselves enough to make it as resonant as some of those other films. Interesting. Because, yeah, I think it, it's it's once the thrill of seeing that this is actually happening at all is is so wonderful that has a, an ability to wear out a little bit. Like 
ironically, the very precision that makes it so awesome upon first viewing gives us gives me at least less to dig in because I know what he's what the intent was. And it's so singular in a way that Nashville has some very solid themes, but it's also willing to be so uh, willing to look into un, un, unexpected uh, corners of its environment that it is a lot more rewarding on repeat viewing. Well, today. it's not as sprawling as a Nashville or as the film we're going to talk about after this. Right. It's a very focused film. For me, it loses nothing with repeat viewings. I am consistently amazed at its accomplishments because it's attempting storytelling in such an original way. And with Altman as a master director working at the heights of his powers, I could keep watching the player over and over again. Out of all the directors we talked about on the Directors Club, Altman has one of the more incredibly fascinating career paths, and one of which that I find really maybe the most rewarding to like examine, because here's a person whose vision had and things that interested him had gone through these these highs and lows, both of like the kind of things that he was interested in, but also went through the sweep of film history and appreciation of the director that you had described over on the 70s. It brings to mind, and I'm just getting a little tangential, um, about how the tragedy of Orson Welles, mm -hmm. how when he got a little bit of money to, and a little, uh, he managed to make, uh, he managed to make gold with so often. And when he got a studio backing for Touch of Evil, he makes one of the best noirs of all time. Right. And is, also, is kind of a singular version of a noir. So I feel that, like, he, Altman can share with Wells a sense of fertil cinematic fertility. I feel like if you give him the resources, he has a chance to do something spectacular that you that you may have never seen before he will take that ambition and run with it when i look at this at the movies we've talked about in this podcast i feel it's sort of a renewal thing and not a case where like in kurosawa where he got a a wonderful reprieve with funding from lucas mm -hmm. but here it, i feel it growing and growing from J come to the five and dine through secret honor through fool for love it, it, a little bit of a detour when the lightning around we talk about, but then in Tanner, it gets it's still in a TV realm. It's still not in the movie realm, but he's building the tools, and the tools lead to a great result in the player, and from there he leapfrogs to something way more ambitious, possibly the most ambitious that Altman has ever done in his film Shortcuts in 1993.
It's set in Los Angeles during a medfly infestation, and it's the location for the many interlocking tales of 24 characters, based upon nine short stories and a poem by Raymond Carver. A number of these characters are connected by a car accident in which a young boy is injured. Other plot lines are set in motion when a dead body is found on a fishing trip, and even more lives are together with a seismic event. Now, why would I say that this is his most ambitious? It's because where even the mighty Nashville is about a system. It's about a subculture. I kind of think that Shortcuts is a way of just making a grand statement about all culture, albeit in Los, about in, in Los Angeles. I think you're jumping across all sorts of different things and not one or one industry or one segment of society. And so here I, I get a feeling that it's a kind of a big ultimate human statement. I couldn't agree more. It, it's overflowing with humanity. It reminds me of this great series of films from uh, Polish director uh, Krzysztof Kozlowski, who uh, around actually the same time this came out was doing a series called the Three Colors Trilogy, uh, Blue, White, and Red. And they also used their characters as kind of way to represent these very raw human emotions and Shortcuts is overflowing with that. And it's presented in a way that, that's very artistic because, as you mentioned, it's based on a series of these Carver short stories that were not meant to be interrelated. So where the uh, actual plots are adapted, the way they interlock is often where uh, the creativity really shines because he's able to find these connections thematically between the various stories and then present them visually. Hmm. Now, I have to say my first impression on this film was quite negative. And the reason for that was because I was perhaps imprinted on Altman a little differently than maybe most people who know who got familiar with his work, at least when my first Altman was the player. Mm. So that level of of attention and um and just the precise qualities that I and the uh, uh, amazing way it was commenting on two things simultaneously. I was so enchanted by how dedicated and and effective it was at, at showing this that that I was initially enamored by the idea of doing something to a city scope on shortcuts, and then I found out like I kind of hated everybody in the movie, and then uh, and then I wished an earthquake would kind of destroy them, the majority of them, and uh, and it didn't have this incredibly direct idea of. A mission statement, a dual mission statement of, in, in the player's case. Get the movie made, save your studio, and get the heck out of this, and get the, and get a, a beat this murder rap. That's not what Shortcuts is about. <laughs> and so now watching it for this podcast, I have a, a, a kind of a renewed, a, a different kind of impression on it. One thing that I most appreciate about it is the sheer difficulty level of just 
being able to pull this off as successfully as it does. We're talking a three-hour-plus movie that moves across these 24 characters that's not boring, that doesn't sell really short shrift on any one of these guys, and moves across different tones of real high drama, wacky comedy, very ironic situations. And uh, and like the Keshlovsky reference you were talking about, there's cases where fate pulls people's uh, uh, actions in unexpected directions. I had a, a little bit of a similar evolution with this film in the sense that I, I, I liked it a lot more than you did mm -hmm. the first time I saw it. But my first viewing, it didn't become one of my favorite films. That eventually did happen with repeated viewings. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yes, the player instantly first viewing it was already way up there as far as difficulty goes yes but there is a template because of altman's own nashville a lot are different between the two but what those two movies have in common is the ability to juggle these gigantic casts in a way that there's no main character that there's no single storyline we're following but that tells a coherent story anyway. And I think the key to the two shortcuts, uh, the moment that sums it up for me is the monologue by Jack Lemon in the middle of the film. Oh, that's really fascinating. I'm just, I'm going to have some comments on that, but I'm very curious. Why, why mm -hmm. do you think that's the, the key moment? Well, the, the context of the moment is that uh, this couple played by Andy McDowell and Bruce Davidson, their son is, uh, has been seriously injured having been hit by a car. And they don't know if he's going to make it or not. And in the middle of waiting for the news at the hospital, uh, Davidson's long-estranged father shows up, played by Jack Lemon. He is aware of what has happened, but he's never met his grandchild. He is so involved in his own life and in his own reason for being there, which has nothing to do with why his son is there, but is everything to do with this damaged relationship that he wants to fix but he but he's making it much worse because he's not listening he's talking telling stories regaling his son with all these things that he thinks are going to magically improve their relationship but because he's not listening because he's not aware of what's going on from other people's points of view he's making the relationship much worse now if you take that as kind of a template it's happening over and over in shortcuts in character after character after character they're making assumptions about what other people might feel or might want, but because they're not listening, they're going their own way and doing their own thing anyway. Mm. Man, that is just great. And it's, and I'm take that as kind of an object lesson of how you should, of a different way about how looking at a scene can bring a film into focus. And, uh, and I feel now that like my 
impressions on shortcuts had not had that framework. And and to be fair to me, I blame Jekyll. <laughs> by, by the way, to be fair to me, I didn't catch that till my third viewing of the movie. <laughs> okay. That you I think you've got absolutely have that pegged at that it's it doesn't have the themes in Nashville of putting on a show in the show version, mm-hmm. putting on a show the politics version, and how those mash together in American history. It doesn't have these onrushing concerns of the day of the very, very unfortunate weekend mm-hmm. in Nashville. But what it does have is that sensibility of exploring the famous couple lines of the um, Simon and Garfunkel tune, The Sound of Silence. People talking without speaking, Mm -hmm. people hearing without listening. And that sense of people's expressiveness, (laughs) holy shit, it's like, pardon my French, sorry. (laughs) Holy, Holy crap, it just occurs to me, it's like, it's as if, maybe this is uncharitable, but it's as if L.A., everyone has a little Millie inside of themselves. Oh, from, from three women. From three women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and that, and so that's a really interesting connection with three women now that I never would have made without even considering <laughs> that. And why did I, why do I, why did I didn't register for me before is that uh, Lemon, to me, I was really put off by that mm-hmm. because first off, it comes across as a little bit of a cameo. He kind of disappears. Unlike the re- other characters in the movie, you don't see him again. It's just kind of like a basic walk-on thing. And I felt, and I felt he was mannered. I felt he was rolling up his sleeves like, okay, I'm going to do Shelley Levine <laughs> and be this, be this frantic, uh, frantic, neurotic, uh, Jack Lemoniest lemon I could be. <laughs> And so, as you can tell, I was a little bit turned off by it, and apparently I was so turned off that I didn't realize. I didn't realize that that is exactly what's happening. Because the other characters are also turned off by everything Jack Lemmon is doing. He is playing an extremely unlikable character in this film. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, but it's, he, it's clear that he wants to go and acknowledge something about his life, but he's not putting that in the context with what the things that the other people need from it. And so to me, one of the most resonant scenes on some, on, on in shortcuts happens when um, a- a- Andy McDowell's character wants to get a cake for her son by a, a very irritated and, uh, and maniacally dedicated baker played by Lyle Lovett. And due to the accident, they can't respond to his call, uh, increasingly urgent calls about what to do with the cake. And this leads him to be more and more angry. And I found it really interesting that when that they handle the thing, events that happen to their child in what I find a very, very stoic and reserved manner that is quite distinct from how Lovett's character is obstinate and loud upon the issues that were in that was were in his life in hit but in his life it's all about baking and but he doesn't understand that the things that are so important to him are affecting people who have other things in their lives 
So so when they have that conference when they have a confrontation later in the movie, it brings out that very feel a very similar feeling that you bring out with the with the lemon lemon reference. Right. He doesn't have that piece of information that would allow him to empathize, that would allow him to react appropriately. So by not asking questions, by not being curious or inquiring, and just going on based on his own assumptions, he does things he'll eventually feel incredibly guilty about. Yes. So... That shows like something I want to uh, talk about with shortcuts, which I don't put it on as high a pedestal as, as some other people, and and to extent of of films of Altman's like Nashville or even uh, or even The Player. And part of it is that the thing that it does really really nicely that I was feeling even before you brought up the lemon thing is it talks about people in regards to that very sense of a situation. We put people in a situation and we see how they – when we see how they react. Mm-hmm. Like my favorite part is um, uh, a character played by Francis McDormand who is who is um, uh, uh, sleeping with uh, a, a very, very angry and put-upon police officer played by played by Tim Robbins. And, and their dynamic – their dynamic is inc- – I find incredibly fascinating. For one, uh, for one thing – Tim Robbins' sort of lack of any actual authority is is made great fun of with regards to his incredible desire to be thought of <laughs> as a guy who has a lot of authority. So he's he is so irritated by the demands placed upon him by his kids and his yappy, yappy, yappy <laughs> dog. <laughs> that uh, And just the matter-of-fact way that he deals with that poor animal is, is something that I just found really, really amusing. <laughs> as well as as well as how he um uh, his relationship with his wife, played by Madeline Stowe, changes quite dramatically. By what he sees, what he espises is happening, and what he thinks is happening with Francis McDormand, which kind of is happening, but not for the reason that he thinks it is. Exactly. And Francis, <laughs> and Francis McDormand has an ex-husband, uh, played by uh, P- played by Peter Gallagher, and Gallagher cannot be more different than his uh, role in the player as this kind of cowboy roguish roguish type. Who wants to get this grandfather clock out of out of the house that he and uh, he and his ex-wife had um a co had uh, cohabitated in, and as and and he just won't go away in the first in the first part of the film, and as Francis McDormand heads off somewhere, he proceeds to do a dism- a systematic dismantling of of the environment, in a way that harkens back a little for different reasons to. Uh, Harry Call's sense of destruction at the end of the conversation. And he thinks that he thinks that she's unfaithful and he is also correct, but for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this, so much like the enjoyment I get out of three women, that sense of people's feel, and also from the magnificent Alexander Payne film election, that feeling of people's emotions and neuroses and, and concerns and fears getting displaced from one person to another. The thing that a person gets from someone is not necessarily the thing that the first person offers and is not the thing that like they'll get in return, or at least they don't think it is. Th- that sort of richness of, 
of human experience in a situ- depending upon and especially upon how people get what they need or pursue what they want depending upon the situation I think is handled really wonderful yeah that whole section of the film uh, is so rich uh, in that it reveals things about characters that in very subtle ways that you wouldn't normally notice like as Peter Gallagher is destroying the house, Tim Robbins actually comes back. He's a police officer, and he's angry enough about everything going on in his life. You would right. think he would have some kind of a confrontation when he sees this guy who he realizes is his lover's ex destroying the house. But no, he just throws a rock through the window and goes away. <laughs> Yes. And even in a moment where I find even crazier, he actually has an intense bout of lovemaking to his wife and becomes a better family man. (laughs) All out of finding out that his mistress was cheating on him. Nothing here is expected. (laughs) And the thing I really want to emphasize about the tone of shortcuts is how much, is how truthful it is. We talked about some storylines that are very potentially tragic, but there are others that are just funny as hell. And the movie is adept at juggling all these emotions one after another in a way that never seems jarring because that's what life is. Life is sad in one moment, uh, ridiculous in another moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, but then on the other side for me, there was one thing that I was, that I felt it went short and, and it was a very surprising thing Mm -hmm. is that oftentimes it was actually short on character. What I mean on character is the great Mr. Plinkett, when he was reviewing uh, the Phantom Menace in an epic review that's longer than the film itself (laughs) and way more worthwhile to watch, he points out what defines character. It's like, can you can you describe what a person would be without describing what their situation is, what their job is, or what they're wearing? And the characters in, the, in episodes four, five, and six pass that test handily, and other characters less so. I go a little further than that to say, if you were to t- the ultimate mark, what makes for a great character is if you take that character and pop them into a completely unfamiliar situation, mm-hmm. like. Like, if you took Indiana Jones and you put him in space, it's weird, but you feel you know what would happen. You feel you know what would happen, how he would react to things. If you were to take any character that Keith Carradine played in all the Altman films that he's done and put him in, say, a Star Wars environment, you know what the, you have a sense of how he would behave. And time and time again, when I'm watching Shortcuts, I don't get that from characters. Hmm. Now, some characters you do. Lyle Lovett, great character. Tim Robbins, great character. Madeline Stowe as Tim Robbins' wife, nothing. Absolutely nothing. I have I have no idea where what who she is. I have no idea where she's coming from, except that she's put upon by by Tim Robbins' cheating. Right. She's uh, a bit of a vehicle. She's such a for, vehicle. for that, except we also see her interacting with her sister who's an artist and she's her and and she poses nude for her and they have a a number of interesting bonding moments as well. The sister played by uh, Julianne Moore. And I, I, I certainly would say that there are characters that are more prominent than others. 
And sometimes a character's job is to elicit a reaction in another character. But it's still providing richness because we don't get the full appreciation of Tim Robbins' story arc unless we see what his home life is like, unless we see how he acts differently with his wife than with his mistress. Right. But even as like care, even in characters in other Altman films who were whose purpose in a story is to be sort of a sounding board or a reaction shot. I think, for example, the hideous uh, manager of Barbara Jean, Altman has shown an absolute genius at being able to do that in his films. Like even the side characters, John Shuck in Mash, mm-hmm. you kind of know you dumb, lumbering, innocent, but uh, with with some religious issues, and so. You can, but even that, in the most glancing of ways, you feel it's informed in the character. And I look at look at um, Peter Davidson and Andy McDowell's characters, and I f- and I see nothing in terms of character at all. Really? Yeah. I oh, see- that shocks me because I think they're very richly drawn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, I just see them, mm-hmm. and I look at like their parents who are concerned that their kid got hurt, and I don't see any other any other example about them that makes them distinct. I think, yes, they're concerned about their kid getting hurt. Every parent would be. Like when he meets Jack Lemon and and, and Jack has his, that has his has his monologue at him, he's upset. As you would be if a guy is that insensitive while you're at this moment of pain. Except he's not only upset about that. He's also upset because, well, because as we discuss, his his father is clearly not in the moment of what's going on with him, but also because the story his father is telling is about an affair he was having when he was a child and felt like he was being abandoned. So here he is trying to deal with his own son's injury, and his father is bringing to him all these memories of his own abandonment of, as, as a child. Okay, right. But I completely agree with you on that. But I think that's a case where the film is great in the situation. See, you're looking at this, the, at this moment where it's interesting upon the things that are, the things that are happening in these characters' lives. But what I don't find interesting is how Davidson reacts to it. Hmm. I don't feel he's upset. <laughs> that's that's it's kind of like the Homer Simpson joke upon like when you when he's making that a patriotic movie and he says see the scene he's symbolic he's mad <laughs> it's like I look at Davidson's reaction and just and I go yeah he's upset for example how does it tie in with his job about like commenting on the news like and how does that feel with reaction to his wife I mean and 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 does is there a conflict between is there any conflict or friction between his between his dedication to work and his wife just to take one example but but i don't find anything about there it's just like this guy's telling me an awful thing and i'm and i'm upset about it and it doesn't go in any it doesn't go in any interesting direction hmm. and in a similar way for, but for an opposite reason i feel about julianne moore and an astounding actress who is incredibly random in this one um and because at times she's a real out there artist, always doing, always doing nudes. At times, though, she's really amazed that Alex Trebek is watching a concerto. <laughs> and 
I don't square that. I don't square that at all. I don't see her as anything but a collection of ticks. And that is not helped by the world's, as far as I can tell, the world's only bottomless argument that's <laughs> ever been put on film. I'm just like, what crazy thing will she do next? Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Alex Trebek, who has that cameo at the yeah. beginning. And then at the end of the movie, uh, we're in Julianne Moore and Matthew Modine's house, and we focus in on a Jeopardy game, which they're about to play, as tensions in their marriage is arising. Talk about an on-the-nose prop with the title of the game. For right? sure. <laughs> but the, the Julianne Moore character, I think, is so much more interesting than that, because she is presenting as this free spirit who uh, paints nudes and walks around naked and has these parties and, and, and all that stuff. But her husband, Matthew Modine, is so the opposite, is so repressed. And so we kind of see this tension of what makes this marriage work, because all these things that, that, that define her are, con are contrasted in her husband. And, that, and then when they have their big scene, which basically plays as a straight-ahead, non-dream version of the opening of Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> where, <laughs> uh, nice. Where she admit, uh, admits to an affair and he reacts very badly. It's very much a look into these characters' lives. So I, I just feel like they're revealing more than that. That's really interesting that you would say that. And especially in light of the, the, the lemon thing, <laughs> I, it might be a case where part of it is that I don't, I can't get past, uh, worst of all, Matthew Modine, <laughs> because he's quite a bit of a detriment in this film. He, in, in that, uh, it's not even that he doesn't have a character. It's that he poorly displays three characters. He is a complete non-entity of a by-the-book doctor with not a single thing interesting to say except that he's irritated by his wife's um, interest in Alex Trebek. Then Modine, with no grounding or setup, his turn into uh, Stanley Kowalski's gel uh, slash um, uh, uh, Jake LaMotta's jealous rage and jealous questioning in that scene is I found phenomenally unconvincing. No setup? Is, is there really no setup if we've established how much of a free spirit his wife is and how he is not? Um, he is um, not a free spirit, but he's also not emotive mm -hmm. up until then. Right. And so maybe a different actor would have been able to successfully convey the rage underneath. But I found Mr. Modine very ineffective on it. And it does not help that in the third phase of once certain clown makeup comes on mm -hmm. and uh, he falls completely into the birdie zone. Like there's a moment where, where he turns around and his face is painted white and he hisses at the people nearby where what's meant to be, I guess, some moment of exposure to him makes me just like birdie go, dude, what the hell are you doing? And why the hell am I watching this? Do you recall what he said when asked what he wanted to be, paint, wanted to be painted as? 
uh, like to be completely expressionless. Nothing is what he said. Uh huh. And so, if you're going to typecast Matthew Modine, <laughs> you may have found the right role for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I also want to bring up in that that their relationship fails something I call the the fool and his money paradox. Or even in the uh, when they Benjamin Franklin or some there was some other aphorism that says a fool and his money is soon parted, and to which even when I was younger I was just thinking, well, how did the fool get the money in the first place? And and this is a case where I look at how she acts and I look at how he acts and and then I go. There's no freaking way that these guys not only don't have anything in common with each other, but there's no way these guys would have ever gotten together. But then you add that they're partnered up with a former salesman who's now a fishing and beer enthusiast and a professional clown. (laughs) And I'm literally thinking... Am I watching the filmed version of the old joke about a priest, a cleric, and a rabbi walk into a bar? That's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking now the artifice the situation is coming across as completely artificial to me. Well, for me it is the opposite because none of these characters are just their titles or their jobs. Before this happens, we get to know all four members of the two couples in different circumstances and in very interesting ways that reveal a lot about them. So by the time they're all together, the fact that one's a, one's a fisherman, one's a clown, one's a doctor is less important than what have we seen from these characters so far. Mm. And I do want to talk about the other couple because I think their storyline might be the mirror image of the Jack Lemon thing in pursuing the theme of the film. Okay. Because that's a storyline about telling the truth, which, by the way, is also what Julianne Moore is doing when she tells the story of her affair to her husband. But in the case of Fred Ward, who's the fisherman, him and his uh, buddies, uh, Buck Henry and Huey Lewis, for some reason, are are going fishing. They've been looking forward to this trip forever. And as they're fishing, they encounter a dead body. Mm -hmm. But not wanting to ruin a perfectly good fishing trip, they just decide to tie the body uh, up to a rock and do their fishing for a few days, and then they'll let the authorities know after they're done and what's the harm. And so Fred Ward comes home to his wife, Ann Archer, who is the the clown. (laughs) He tells this story of what happened, thinking, because he's not listening that she'll find it just as amusing as he does. But because her character is so rich in in portrayal, both in the writing and the acting, her reaction to it, she absolutely takes in the humanity of what happened and what it means that her husband let a dead body of a human being 
just fester for days so that him and his buddies could have a fun fishing trip. And you know Mm. she'll never look at her husband the same way again. And she reveals these, these feelings to him. She lets him know, so she becomes a truth teller in this. And the reason those two couples are together at the end is because the women in both those couples became truth tellers. And can the men in those two couples be willing to listen? Again, you are, you are doing a, you are, there's some, you're making some points that I find amazing in terms of showing, exposing more and more richness on this film on the characters' situations. What, but not, but I still feel reluctant <laughs> on just the way that they aren't done as characters. Like you talk about her, she is distraught about that. But she, but literally, that's the only thing that we know about her is that this is some thing mm-hmm. that that has made that has made her distraught. Up until that point, she's wearing a uh, she's wearing clown makeup and uh, doesn't really have anything that informs her character except that she's mildly annoyed for being pulled over, which again mm-hmm. is something that everyone can, <laughs> everyone can relate to. And in a similar way, um, uh, Fred Ward is mildly more concerned about the dead body than his other two fisherman buddies, but basically they all seem to have exactly the same attitude. Right. But those three guys, there's not really uh, any, there, there's a lot of potential dynamics that I felt you could have done about those three. And it just harkens back to the kind of ensemble stuff that John say that John sales was, was doing to in his films and every character in films says eight men out or city of hope. And especially Lone Star, even if they're doing the similar things, mm-hmm. you feel like every member of the baseball team in Eight Men Out, sure. you, you you know they're going to have a dip, a slightly even if they want the same things, they're going to do a different thing about it, and that's something which again I'm shocked that I found a little missing in in shortcuts. But I think you raised something that raises another interesting dimension: the way people, especially guys, are defined by their jobs. The main conflict like, that I found interesting was how the baker. Is so defined by his work that he's unre not realizing what uh, what the th- how hurtful the things he's doing are. Mm-hmm. But so many of these people they reference the work that they do. Stor- uh, the uh, the Francis McDormand's ex husband is the is a helicopter is a is a helicopter pilot. Uh, the Davidson character is is a is a co- online commentator, and most fascinating to me on this score is Chris Penn as a semi-working pool cleaning guy, pool guy. Now, that's incredibly ironic. If you guys know the stereotype of the lonely housewife (laughs) who thinks of the pool guy as an opportunity. Because this poor schmuck (laughs) is like the... Not since Emil Jennings in the blue in the uh, von Sternberg's The Blue Angel or Michael Stuhlbarg in A Serious Man, but especially The Blue Angel, not has a guy been so singularly deballed <laughs> systematically throughout the course of an entire movie as Chris Penn. <laughs> in fact, it's so funny that you bring up Eyes Wide Shut because he literally is having a Eyes Wide Shut's journey of sexual oppression if Ralph Crampton was doing it. <laughs> 
this poor guy, everywhere he goes, his best friend, his wife, like, he is all this rampant sexuality and sexual connection that he can absolutely not get. Well, the, and, the wife's job is key to that, right? Yes. The wife who, whose job is in a very humorous manner is to, uh, do phone sex talk. And that's, and it, Oh, it's so emasculating in so many ways because both she talks in an, in, in a seductive ribald way that she never actually talks about it, talks when, when he wants to make love to her, but also, She's clearly making more money than him as well. Right, right. <laughs> so Jennifer Jason Lee is fantastic in that role. She's, yeah, she's talking as apparently she found act. Apparently she researched by uh, being on the line with actual sex workers <laughs> and took took their dialogue exactly. It's a special kind of yeah. acting skill to be. Um, to be saying the most filthiest, depraved things while holding your kid in one hand and folding your laundry in the right. other. <laughs> and so, and, and it's kind of interesting how we're talking on, there's, there's so many depths, but those depths are, are delivered across multiple places. I think that's, again, back to, to the Nashville formula mm. is that be, when you have a film with 24 leads, as in no leads, you're not going to spend a great deal of time with any of them. Now, there are a few characters who get more time than others, but basically it's such a large ensemble that the character development has to happen over the course of many characters, not just one. So just as Jack Lemon leaves the film because he's not getting the result that he hoped for. You also have another character, uh, a torch singer played by Annie Ross, whose daughter, played oh, by yeah. Laurie Singer, is basically talking about suicide and pretending that she's, she's going to commit suicide. And because it's something she doesn't want to hear, she doesn't listen to the warning signs from her own daughter, which is again kind of a continuation of the J the Jack Lemon character and his inability to connect with his son and i feel like this happens throughout shortcuts is different characters whether they're representing infidelity or a search for something you have to look at them as a whole, just like we kind of say the main character of Nashville in Nashville is the city of Nashville. Uh -huh. The main character of Shortcuts is the collective, all of them who are their own community of different motivations, uh, emotions, and reactions. It's quite an amazing feat. He moves from Shortcuts to go and look at a whole different aspect of society and goes international in his film, Prete Pote, or Ready to Wear, released in 1994. She don't need a man. She wants to be 
The fashion world descends on Paris for Fashion Week, including an ensemble of over 20 characters. Through lines include the fallout from a possible murder of the head of the Fashion Council, three magazine editors who will do anything to secure the services of a top photographer, and two journalists who end up in the same hotel room and soon find little reason to leave. And a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> Uh, this uh, another ensemble collection, <laughs> um, another look at a different part of society and a system uh, uh, like the music system in Nashville and like the political system in Tanner 88. Now we're looking at the fashion industry and does Altman keep his streak of, of examinations on society alive? Well, one difference is that all those other films when they were looking at their industries, had something to say about it. <laughs> Ready to Wear, as it's called in America, because we don't pronounce Pret-a-Porter, is a little more like another Altman film called A Wedding. While incorporating an even larger cast, what it doesn't do is really incorporate any themes. It was just satisfied to be a straight comedy. And here again, coming after shortcuts, Ready to Wear is now part of a formula. It's the Altman Large Ensemble formula, which twice has yielded these amazing results. But it's because those films had something to say. And the fashion industry is certainly rich in possibilities, but instead, we're kind of just getting little character quirks. And we, we want character quirks. We want movies to have characters that have these eccentricities. But what happens when the eccentricities are all there is? There's not really a plot. There's not a through line, except that there's a fashion week going on. The characters don't have the depth what we basically have is the frosting on the cake of the rest of the films with no cake yeah there's certain things where in a manner that is quite rare for altman he is reappropriating things from earlier in his career the national influence is obviously pretty strong on this one right but it relies quite a bit on a, a non-opal from the BBC, a, right. <laughs> a ditzy reporter played by Kim Basinger for uh, for Fad TV. As <laughs> she has this inane com provides this inane commentary on what's going on at these fashion shows, and is very clearly just pursuing whatever will give her the biggest celebrity scoop possible. <laughs> um, there is a really twisty moment where once again Sally Kellerman. Uh, has her bare breasts used as a point of humiliation, as she did in her debut in MASH. It's the only her third appearance since Brewster McCloud, so it's interesting that she seemed to be coming in just to seem to embarrass herself. That was very unfortunate, and basically there's a whole subplot just about this photographer played by Stephen Ray um, 
humiliating these three women just because he can, just because they're in need of his services and he has the same attitude towards them as OC and Stig has towards the rich family. <laughs> well, I, I like, well, I, the thing is he's my favorite character on this film, which otherwise I just mostly, it's not that I hate it, but I find it doesn't, there's a particular reason why it, it's not really that worth watching, but I did like his treatment because he treats everything with the same sort of, I don't give a crap. This thing, I think this thing stinks. Mm -hmm. And the things that he's asked to witness is, in fact, deserve that level of scorn. I was particularly charmed by a thing where he's filming these supermodels who are adver who are showing off a line of boots. And so Stephen Ray does a magnificent job of using patter to just show how absolutely jaded and uncaring he is about. Okay, guy. Okay, ladies. Now think of it. You're John Wayne. You're not looking at the camera. You're in another John Ford classic. Now you're Randolph Scott. Smile like <laughs> Randolph Scott. It just—it's so clear he doesn't care if anyone understands what he has to say <laughs> on these things. I think what kind of and on and you say there's no connective uh, sequence. I wish that was the case, because. Maybe more embarrassing than Sally Kellerman is an awful, awful performance by Marcello Mastriani <laughs> as some sort of lover slash spy who is always seen skulking around wearing a hideous suit that he's stolen from somebody else and engaging in these sub-Inspector Clouseau-level hijinks. There's there's some moments where I felt like I'm watching La Dopey Vita. Altman has an almost unprecedented ability to bring in celebrities to his films. That's why he can do these gigantic casts, is that every single actor wants to work for them. But in this case, he's not developing characters for these actors. He's using their personas and basically referencing them from their other movies. So you hook Mastrioni up with Sophia Loren because they're they're in every movie together. Mm -hmm. And again, all and there's all this setup with, with his character. No payoff. It's not important. It doesn't matter what he's stolen or how shady he is. Right. It doesn't pay off. Right, right. And the backdrop between all all this is a setting which is also just works in the movie's detriment because his earlier ensemble pieces, whether it's the dislocation of people in LA and in shortcuts and and the political system in Tanner and especially all the music scene in Nashville, there is a baseline of where how much you take this serious uh, the setting seriously and how much you should care. Mm -hmm. None of which that an American audience at least is going to care about in this in this setting. Like it's it just comes across to me like as if Nashville was about everyone coalescing on the city to perform an an 18-hour concert dedicated to the sounds of Yoko Ono. <laughs> In all the other kind of institutional films where Altman looks into these professions, he seems to have a degree of respect for it. 
And Mm -hmm. it would be as if he approached Nashville with the idea that he hates country music. And that would have been death to that movie. And it's kind of what is death to this movie is Mm -hmm. I I think he looks at fashion as something to just mock. But you have to dig deeper if you're going to do anything other than just kind of a shallow overview. Yes, that's that's I that's right. What makes a really good satire, or really, or even a good parody, is ultimately it. I don't feel that it has to go as far in Mel Brooks in terms of actively loving the subject that you're sat that you're parodying. No, but the thing is, somebody has to. We don't. Ha- he doesn't have to love it, but but somebody, the people who are doing it, have to. Right. You have to know it. Mm-hmm. You have to understand right. what makes the thing silly. Yeah. And and for however. For however brutal he is and the characters of Brewster McCloud, it's very clear he knows those genres from the from the educator who turns into a bird to the uh, cop drama. He knows these genres right. down cold. And the difference in that imp- and Ready to Wear is that in Ready to Wear, it's not that he's looking in the fashion world and gets the details. It's that he's looking at the fashion world and goes, I don't care. I'm just going to do silly stuff that has very little to connection to the things that make the fashion world silly or to make an interesting point about fashion. Like there's so many like just coincidences, like like goofy jumping around the bed, for example, um just uh, like people fainting at inopportune moments and in a moment that in in and there's several points where like contrivance is done to such a deliberately stupid Degree. I'm almost thinking. Are you parodying yourself? Like two two uh, fashion magazine editors are both having the exact same argument on um, uh, about not being in the right apartment hotel in the right hotel room. And then there's these moments where two people are having an affair, and then there are significant others are having also having an affair, and they just keep rhyming. To which I'm just like, do you have some sort of doppelganger <laughs> fetish going on? Well, the thing is, Altman does do this rhyming, but it's always a punctuation point mm-hmm. onto something much more substantive. It's never just the thing itself. Right. And here it here it mostly is. It's very, it's ironic about the fashion, but that his comedy just goes on the most banal surface level. Right. I mean, look at the whole Tim Robbins, Julia Roberts subplot and the old, oh, these two attractive opposites end up, they've both been given the same room, but neither of them will back down. Yeah. So they, I mean, is there any, is there any cliche as old as this one? Exactly. It's like, like the sitcom plot where you, where they have to share a room. And so they make a dotted line. It's like, mm-hmm. this is on your half. <laughs> it's, it's this kind of corn, which is, I don't know how much you'd enjoy it in an, in another film, but in something about the fashion world, which as you say, is rich with its own satirical targets. Altman doesn't seem to bother to address any of those ones. Well, it seems like he's in an area that he doesn't care much about. So maybe the results will be differently when uh, he looks at the area where he's actually from.
Right. Almond may or may not care about the styles in Ready to Wear, but he's working, I think, an exercise in style in his film Kansas City, released in 1996. In the jazz-infused, in this jazz-infused city in the 1930s, a small-time hood dons some blackface to rob a notorious African-American gangster named Seldom Seen. And when he's caught, his movie-obsessed wife, Blondie, will stop at nothing to get him home safe, even kidnapping the drug-addled wife of a high-power political operative. Every time we cut to the bar that Seldom Seen holds up at, we get a generous helping of jazz music from some of the best jazz musicians of, of Kansas City. There's so much of it that, that, that you might ask, well, why is this added on? Why are we not still with the plot? Why are we watching all this jazz? And my feeling about this and kind of Altman's filmmaking in general is he's always, there's always something that grabs him and attracts him to a project. And for this one, I think the jazz music might be that thing. And the story and the plot and the actors are something that he put in mostly so that he'd have an excuse to feature this um, these amazing musicians. Yeah, uh, I do feel that way as well. And I think it's to the movie's uh, great detriment in that uh, um, that almost everything falls by the way, all it falls by the wayside as just an exercise in isn't jazz from the 30s amazing and what i was saying about the different la- the different characters elements i found lacking in shortcuts now i find actually different in the musical character lacking in in Kansas City um I look at the music done in, in Nashville, or even music that's meant there to be like sort of mocking, like the lady singing in the casino in California Split, mm-hmm. and I go, well, but each song and each singer is giving a different spin on these thi- uh, a, a different spin on these things, and for the vast majority of Kansas City's musical sequences, <laughs> every, no matter it's day or night, whatever time. You just go down to this club and you're just going to hear great jazz in a way that I harkens back to when I was a little kid and I thought my beloved favorite characters like Bozo and Fraser Thomas from WGN actually lived in the studio. <laughs> it's like, don't don't you get to quote to quote Ted Knight, don't you guys have homes? <laughs> or are you just exist to glorify the world with with jazz? And with one exception, with one exception, the um they're they're desire to play their hearts out at what is in effect a dingy club that they're paying for that they're being charged peanuts for to entertain a bunch of evil mobsters <laughs> is 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 a thing that I found ridiculous now the one exception is when in a is a great moment where two saxophone players are playing and they they're trying to outdo each other when it's very clear to impress their girlfriends, <laughs> and they have a show-off, and there's so much dynamism as how they're playing off each other and trying to one-up each other. Unfortunately, the film fall the film falls short of that, not just in the musical sections, but in pretty much every other plot section. <laughs> uh, so much of it is characters going through the motions of what you expect movie characters to do um uh and whereas 
other films had Altman commenting on the tropes of filmmaking. Here, maybe for the first time, is I feel him indulging in these tropes. So I'm less bothered by that because it's actually connected to the theme of the film, this idea of movie going and being influenced by the movies because the lead character played by Jennifer Jason Lee has a particular mannerism that would uh, strike audiences today as quite odd, but uh, maybe more familiar to people who watch old movies, particularly people who watch Gene Harlow films mm -hmm. as she's pretty much doing a Gene Harlow impression throughout the film. Uh, basically the uh, tough talking dame of the thirties. You see in the course of the film that she is obsessed with these movies and she's basically built this persona off of the movies. And so Kansas City kind of is imbued with movies a little bit in the same way that uh, Purple Rose of Cairo is. Ah, uh, okay. I, I, sort of, I sort of see that, that how it's... Well, the film is indulging on that and I, I can see how she's meant to be a stylized car a caricature more than an attempt to be realistic. Um, the, the problem to me on it is that <laughs> once you get past the Gene Hamill imitation, the person underneath is a stone-cold crazed psycho killer maniac. Her, her behavior is... Uh, absolutely psychotic <laughs> towards uh, towards what she wants to do as well as uh, and is as out of place as her justification for why her dopey luck of a husband is um, uh, uh, something that she should really uh, commit between five to seven felonies to try <laughs> to try and get back <laughs> and similar to Jean Harlow uh, there's a twist by Harry Belafonte's seldom seen character who is clearly, clearly got pitched to this movie. Like, how would you like to be Marlon Brando in The Godfather? Yep. <laughs> Minus the cat, he spends uh, scene after scene engaging in luxurious, chin-jutting, over-effusive discursion glory. With the mustache. <laughs> right, he has the exact same mustache. <laughs> He's one step away from giving him a, <laughs> for giving um, Dermot Mulroney a um, a request that he will not be able to deny. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is not a great film. It's not one of Altman's best. But I do think if you kind of take it at face value, which is as pretty much a modern version of an old timey crime film. It's it's entertaining. It works for me. And if that's just its job to entertain, then all that jazz music kind of makes more sense as mm -hmm. part of part of the party. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It makes me really wonder if that would be a good companion piece to look at how uh, Francis Ford Coppola did the Cotton Club, which also had just magnificent production values, and uh, but also a story that really didn't made you question why you wanted to follow it. Well, The Cotton Club is a far more serious film. It was uh, an effort to make a another gangster movie in the tradition of The Godfather and falling short. Mm -hmm. This also for, falls short of lofty expectations unless there were your tradition is to 
basically do a film that's not very lofty it's at not, all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's but it, it's ironic you say that because I do agree for the most part that's not lofty, except at the very very end, mm-hmm. there is a twist that lets you reevaluate what one of the characters was doing, and I wonder if it was a way of quoting something that happens in The Long Goodbye, or if there's some more going on with how this person, who has several opportunities to do things but chooses not to, mm-hmm. what, what, kept, what kept this person there and, what, and why they did the things they did may make it even worth a second watch. I know I was startled when that by how it ends. It's a strange moment that I have trouble looking at as consistent with the rest of the film. So if it does have the kind of thematic importance uh, that the end of the long goodbye has, I was not able to catch that. Gotcha. But you were able to go and catch the Gingerbread Man, his take on John Grisham, that was released in 1998. Rick Magruder is a successful lawyer who's fallen for a lovely caterer with an unfortunately psychotic father named Dixon. (laughs) He manipulates the system to get the father committed. But when Dixon escapes, there could be deadly consequences. The gingerbread man brings up a question in my mind, which is, why does Robert Altman need to direct the gingerbread man? (laughs) (laughs) The Popeye question. It is unique in Altman's catalog in that it is a film that could have been directed by anyone. And I can't think of another Altman film like that, whether it's one of the great ones or even one of the bad ones. They're all very distinctly Altman, except for this one, which is a fairly uh, generic crime thriller. It's based on a story idea from John Grisham. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is a hotshot lawyer from Georgia, a very popular trope of the era. And... (laughs) And it's also notable for Altman's reunion with uh, Robert Duvall, who we haven't seen in an Altman film since MASH. But boy, the even even the twist is one that you will see coming from a mile away if you're familiar with crime films from the 90s. Mm. I The biggest thing I took away from it is that he has really liked the cinematography of Kansas City and wants to perpetuate. Because this, this gets to a godfather level of luscious browns and ambers, when you, especially when you see The Office mm-hmm. that, are, that is on there. And, um, and there is um, also a very notable part in taking in a storm, which has this really kind of evocative image as a bunch of reprobates are escaping and they descend amongst the tombstones in the middle of a torrential downpour. I found the reprobates unintentionally hysterical (laughs) because they're, they're basically supposed to be a gang of hillbillies hanging around this old drunk crazy dude except they seem way too competent for it. They break up. <laughs> they break them out of prison. They've got and and they're they're all kind of dressed the same. So I'm like, these are 
Batman villains. Oh, these, funny. <laughs> and I mean, I mean the TV show. These. <laughs> Wow. Now that's a dimension I was never <laughs> considering upon uh, this film, which I did like. I think it's a I think it's a competent mystery. But yeah, I think I'm really with you in that I don't see what Altman added to it or what drew him to make a John Grisham film in the first place apart from perhaps that Ready to Wear in Kansas City. We're not great money makers, and you kind of can't go wrong, especially in those days, with having a John Grisham story be the basis for your movie. Right. Altman's always looking for a genre to deconstruct. I, I think he just forgot to deconstruct this one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And he does this very interesting deconstruction or sideways construction on, of all things... The Land of Mayberry in his next <laughs> film, Cookie's Fortune, released in 1999. Cookie is an elderly Mississippi woman who feels she's lived long enough and shoots herself. Explaining all this to her best friend Willis in a note, the note conveniently disappears when her body is found by her niece, a high-strung local theater director who cannot abide the stain of the suicide on their family name. Despite being a well-loved member of the community, Willis soon finds himself a suspect. So I'm incredibly charmed by Cookie's Fortune. It's one of my favorite Altmans, in fact, uh, after I uh, watched it for this podcast. And it's and that's odd that that's the case for a number of ways. One thing that just comes to mind for me is that through all the films we talked about and were watching, this seems to be one of the very first ones that traffics in pure positive sentiment. Like what's funny is that this film has a wonderfully modulated tone of comedy and good-natured feeling that could not be more different than the kind of approach that he gave to the military <laughs> in MASH. Yeah, I'd echo all of that. This one is so much fun, and the, the Mayberry connection, I think, is key, because it's about the kind of small town that's more the small town of our imaginations than any real small town. It even comes complete with a jail that people can walk in and out of, play some uh, Scrabble, Scrabble yeah, inside Scrabble of. Scrabble Center, yeah. And all the actors really give a comfortable feeling of them having known each other for a long time. This is a community that feels lived in, and the affection between the characters is so authentic and the the film's pacing feeds into all that. If you're kind of waiting for the next plot point to come along, that's not really what the movie is doing. It's got a bit of a crime story, but it's secondary because everything about this film is kind of the value of, of the relationship. So when we first meet Cookie played wonderfully by Patricia Neal mm. uh, in, I believe, what was her last role. She is always with her friend uh, Charles S. Dutton, and they rib each other, and every time 
one of them thinks they have made uh, a point on the other. They basically say, uh, Cookie 753, Willis 680. <laughs> like yeah. this. And that does two things. First of all, it's adorable. Yeah. Second of all, it shows just how long they've known each other. So when people start suspecting Willis, we understand how ridiculous that is because the movie has established their relationship. There's a really lovely moment where the none, basically none of the people in the police station believe that he did the crime, and the head of the chief of police uh, puts it so succinctly using one of Altman's trademark zooms as to go, "I oh, didn't do it. I fish with him." Right. <laughs> <laughs> And that person's played by Ned Beatty, who is as as um, easygoing a sheriff as he is awful as a Scrabble player. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's a, a, a very much more on the topic upon um, what does it mean to be part of this like small community, and and what does it mean to return to it or belong to it or what sets what sets people apart. And yeah, you're so right, and it is about their it is about their relationship. And, and it's got a message, but the message is underplayed because we haven't mentioned it yet because the film doesn't really mention it, although it's clear, is that Willis is black. We know the baggage of a black man being accused of a crime in this country, and that was just as true back then in the South for emphasis as it is now, but the film doesn't want to hit it home like, okay, this is the movie's politics. Mm -hmm. But still, the movie's politics are inescapable. That's a great point. And it's, as is that, the film's very, very light touch as it goes on. It doesn't explicitly look at the racial politics behind the idea of accusing him of the crime. But it is still there, present, and we can... And I think it's part of the film's nature of and it's pacing for us to cons- make that as a part of consideration. And specifically in contrast to just how much great affection that that Dutton and Patricia Neal have for each other. Um, uh, Cookie has, Cookie's been getting on in years, and, and so there's parts where she's uh, sort of missing a step mentally, and, and Dutton's reaction just uh, as he's, uh, realizing how his longtime friend is uh, is uh, going and needs some more help is really quite heartbreaking, and that's not that's something I expect more out of Walt Disney than Robert Altman, right? <laughs> in, in this in this manner, and it is helped along on the other side by a very unique relationship done by two tight, to my mind, Titanic acting performances in this in this film. It's, it's weird to call them Titanic, but I think both Glenn Close and Julianne Moore are exemplary at playing one hell of two incredibly dysfunctional sisters <laughs> who somehow found a way to work together in performance. I don't know how it works because it doesn't, you can't, I don't know if I can even justify what makes some of it so cool. I can say for Glenn Close, she is pitch perfect absolutely perfect and like having a person who has these really awful attitudes upon like her former family members and this real sense of greed and avarice and malevolence but she's also so funny in how greedy she is Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
she handles this with just wonderful aplomb as whether she's whether you have her fingernails slowly curving around the door frame as she tries to enter to her increasingly frantic uh, ways of of searching for things in the house that she still absolutely casually has no problems breaking into over and over and over again despite the wishes of the police force well the the key to oh, oh that's a hysterical element nobody respects the police tape everyone's because they all know the cops they all know the house and they're just like yeah we're going in yeah but i think the key to glenn close's performance is that her character cares about nothing but appearances. So she will sacrifice anything else just to maintain this kind of facade of proper and uh, an elegant appearance. It's not an example that she is the director of the town uh, community play because she feels she should be directing everything, yes. including... Her aunt's suicide. <laughs> yes, yeah. and <laughs> and it's uh, that's a great point. It ties into a particular piece of jewelry that she's very much wants to have her eyes on. That uh, ends up having an important development in the story, and upon its real versus estimated value is uh, uh, an interesting point as to where why her priorities are so out of whack. In the, um, but the way she directs people is nowhere more manifested at Julianne Moore's magnificent comic performance, who literally is comes across as a human-like version of a prop <laughs> in her play. She exists in some way to just, in, in some wonderfully comic way, as someone who only exists to serve... Glenn Close's directorial whims. Julianne Moore has a really tough balancing act to do because yes. she's playing someone who's mentally challenged, but someone who's not so mentally challenged that she can't function or that she can't comfortably be part of this easygoing community. So it's definitely there for the plot and for character, but it's not something that's emphasized. Yeah, well, I don't even, I don't think this world, I think it's a kind of sentimental type, ideal, sort of idealized kind of world that we're looking at. Again, very unique on Altman's case. And then it's it's not so much that I treat her that she has, has a mental deficiency, so much as that she's just an unfortunate unfortunately has had her ways of thinking incredibly limited by the uh, motivations of her of her sister. It's kind of what it reminds me is Nicole Kidman's tremendous job as a person way too dedicated towards being a great newscaster in the film To Die For. Julianne Moore is there to go, I want to do right by my sister. Mm -hmm. My sister really likes theater, so I'm going to do what I can for uh, for theater. Which there's a moment where she announces the crime, and she's just saying how it, it was. She can't just say it's dark. For example, she says it's dark like the night that causes the hounds to bay. <laughs> and, she, and the police department was like, "What? What? <laughs> just just say it's dark. Just say it's dark." <laughs> and in a wonderful moment, uh, she close tells. Close tells her, don't tell the cops anything. And a cop comes by to just try to ask her an innocuous question. 
and she just has this absolutely plastered on smile. I was like, nope, nope, right. not saying anything. <laughs> nope, not saying nothing. <laughs> not going to let any word come out of my mouth. <laughs> it's, I found her just tremendously wonderful. <laughs> yeah, you don't get to see Julianne Moore do this kind of light touch too often. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And it's it's a, and a, obviously it's a lot of odd behaviors, but unlike the odd behaviors I found for her in Shortcuts, here it's absolutely tied to I'm just here to serve my sister. Mm -hmm. And both that and a piece of jewelry all lock things really, really nicely when you see how events uh, turn out. Um, it's a, it's one of the better case of desserts I've I've seen in a in a in a kind of film that is uh, that is working on a on a mystery angle. <laughs> a little less successful is Chris O'Donnell, who continues his tradition of being a gaping void in whatever movie he's in, whether it's Bat whether it's the Batman series or Scent of a Woman. There is a perfect example of how you really need the right kind of act actors or even the right kind of presence. Uh, even John Shuck could have done a better job of, of, of his hapless deputy. And there is so many moments where he's trying to do physical comedy and he's attempt to be like a, a the Barney Fife of this particular twisted version of Mayberry. And he just can't do it. He just, he just can't. He's just so ineffective. It makes me really wish that Sam Rockwell had had that kind of role. Oh, see, I don't see Rockwell as that kind of actor because this is a very much an innocent character. Mm. And Rockwell always plays his roles like he's got some kind of deep hidden angle going. Mm. I actually see this more as a Sean Astin role. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Astin would have worked. Astin would have worked so much better. But frankly, any Hobbit would. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a shame because I think Altman is so successful even in just the way people walk. And the way people, and just the most minute example of behavior, just fits the river of sentiment in this film. Just, uh, this is a Mayberry where you have suicide, possible murder, an innocent man wrongly accused. <laughs> that it has these things, but is not interested in in any of them, or rather shows how it doesn't ma an interest in showing how that doesn't right, matter. Right, because it also has Scrabble and fishing. That's right. And we have to set our priorities. Yes. Uh, but even in the wonderful way Charles S. Dutton ambles around uh, just stealing some liquor, but then always buying it back. Everybody knows he's going to buy <laughs> buy the liquor back the next day. And how the how one of the deputies is is dubbed the expert because he's the one who really wants to go and break a case because he wants to go and use his detective skills. <laughs> and how and how the that gets him nothing but disdain from the other members of the force. Uh, that's just a really fun way to, uh, of encountering. And um, even the stalker, play, even a stalker played by Lyle Lovett, is just done in a kind of endearing and non-threatening manner. But it is clearly stalking. Right, right. <laughs> so he pulls off, yeah. So he pulls off a wonderful trick, like kind of like the rever kind of like the reverse of so many of his films, where he will undercut the sentiment by showing some real antisocial things. He has a film with plenty of antisocial behavior. That's incredibly simple. <laughs> <laughs> and so from here, he moves towards a twisty film in more ways than one in Dr. T and the Woman, released in the year 2000. Dr. T is the most in-demand gynecologist in Dallas. Between his wife's mental illness, his daughter's wedding, a burgeoning relationship with a golf pro, and his endless series of patients... 
Dr. T is surrounded by women, and since he knows no two are the same, he's got a lot of navigating to do. This movie kind of has the opposite issue as the gingerbread man. Hmm. If the gingerbread man is all story and no Altman, here is a film that is all Altman and not really a story that needs to be told. Its basic premise is a little too much like an old Saturday Night Live sketch hmm. when Mel Gibson was on before he went crazy, ah. called uh, something like Mel Gibson, Male Gynecologist. And the big joke is, well, all the women want to be uh, checked up by Mel Gibson, Male Gynecologist, because he was People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. So basically, Richard Gere is playing that role in this town, and uh, the film opens with an office just full of women, because he is the most popular gynecologist in town. Mm -hmm. It takes a little further. Um, Altman takes this kind of goofy premise and does give it some heart. Because we are also following his wife having a nervous breakdown, his daughter about to get married, and we do sense that he's got a lot of empathy for all the women in his life. We also sense that he's a little bewildered by all the women in his life. He does like to occasionally go on fishing trips with the guys, but that's pretty much the only male companionship he has. Mm. This is kind of like women. Can you believe it? The movie. <laughs> so on the one hand, they are fully drawn characters, and that's to the script's benefit. On the other hand, it's always just seen through Richard Gere's eyes. Yeah, and maybe not since, like, Secret Honor has you just have something done from the perspective of one solitary character. Because I don't even think the the gingerbread man just bounces along across (laughs) a couple sometimes. All these women do have have their own showcase scenes. Mm -hmm. But Richard Gere is definitely the center around which everything else is revolving, including uh, a a really weird love story. Uh, Helen Hunt is the romantic lead as a golf pro who uh, catches Richard Gere's eye when nobody else in town seems to. And I don't know, her performance has a lot of very strange mannerisms. She's almost asexual in her demeanor while still going through the motions of starting a relationship. And... Yeah, it's 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 kind of hard to to place it uh other than the fact that it's certainly just not a traditional performance for that kind of role. I think the point of it is uh, maybe a bit of a gender reversal mm-hmm. because basically she's made it clear that no matter where their relationship is, if she wants to move on to another one, she'll feel free to. Ah, okay. <laughs> so uh, so that particular depiction was not as good as it gets oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) um while i'm on a bad pun kick um this film may have one of the most literal twists of altman's or any film (laughs) what was sort of a presentation of all the different women in his life turns into something quite different (laughs) i think the idea that it's viewed from his perspective is very key 
because that if if it wasn't then it would be really quite awful <laughs> it would it would stop the movie cold at least right. and i didn't feel that way <laughs> yes this feeds into something altman's been doing really throughout the movies we've been talking about today we haven't mentioned it each time because it's actually occurs so often mm. but thunderstorms are really common in these films and this uh, this one takes place in Dallas and it shows off a lot of kind of Dallas culture and it ends with a real bad uh, twister which sends Dr. T from his more familiar troubles into an environment he did not expect to be in. Not only just the storms, but the unexpected twist that lets you reevaluate things once again kind of once again kind of shows up. This one's even for Altman is quite left field. Uh, but if you're interested in the idea of what does T think he is doing and is serving by his position, it's a, a very interesting take it when, by the end of this film. Interesting is I, I think about the description I'd use. It's not really a success. It's not one of Altman's better films. It's certainly not as good as Cookie's Fortune, yeah. which was actually uh, from the same writer. But it, it's also not without merit. Uh, it, it's worth seeing, but maybe after you've seen a lot of other Altman films. Very true. And one of those films that you should absolutely see if you haven't already is his film Gosford Park, released in 2001. The world of a wealthy English manor is explored as a posh 1932 dinner party brings together a collection of society folks, but also looks at the downstairs life of the various maids, servants, and drivers. Of course, there's a murder, and no shortage of motives or suspects. Okay, I straight up love this movie, and it's getting neck and neck with three women. And what I think is really cool is that it's maybe equal as in terms of my liking of it, but for completely different reasons. Three Women was written by Robert Altman, and so much of it is so intense, claustrophobic, yet desolate, and very personal, and it fragments into so many things to think about. But... Gosford Park, I find, is one of the most completely rendered packages in terms of the, uh, in terms of a film that I've ever seen, and something where it's not Altman's singular vision, but he is an integral component of what makes it a great movie. It is a wonderful film. It was written by Julian Fellows, who, upon the success of this movie adjusted the concept a bit and created the show Downton Abbey. Isn't it cool how Altman now gets 
a second long-lasting <laughs> mm-hmm. TV show based upon an early uh, film effort of his. Right. This has a number of lasts for Altman. It is probably his last genre deconstruction, which is a look at the Agatha Christie type crime movies and stories where you gather up groups of people where everyone's a suspect. It's also his last large ensemble cast and his last big hit because regardless of the quality of all the movies we've been talking about, really only a handful of them were big box office successes and deservedly so this was one. And when you speak on ensembles, oh my God, if you're going to go out with your final ensemble, you could barely ask for this cast, which is a murderer's row, a just rogues gallery of (laughs) titanic acting talent from top to bottom. Any number of, perhaps I want to say, between 10 or 15 people could have been the star of their own Merchant Ivory production and given a lot of depth and nuance to it. And that's like second maid, okay? Emma Thompson's sister is just has a minor role mm-hmm. in, this, in this film. <laughs> Five of these people were knighted by England, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> and I'm sorry, Burt Remsen and Shelley Duvall... They just cannot compete with what these guys are doing in in two ways. For one, is that they are able to bring epic levels of depth to just even the most minor of actions. It's just great to just see what's going over a per, over the face of Helen Mirren in one scene, or Kristen Scott Thomas's uh, approach to a development in another. But another feature about these guys' talent, and maybe it's based upon how we're a lot, a lot, plenty of them have had experience on stage, is that these are people who get Altman's methodology, but on a complete thoughtful level, where earlier Altman uh, actors were just there intrinsically. They would move a certain way, they behave a certain way, and Altman would use them as building blocks to make his sense of community in MASH and in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But here, everyone has the intent of dedicating themselves and putting their considerable uh, level of talent to bear in just being part of the scene. Right. So many of these actors would have already played roles or have grown up watching roles in movies like this one. So it's, it's secondhand nature for people with the skills of Maggie Smith, for instance, who for me is the highlight of the film. She does some really interesting things. The obvious thing she does is provide some comic relief by just making snide, snobbish comments whenever she gets the chance that she sees an opening and can bring somebody down with her uh, verbal jabs. She will take that opportunity, but in a way that is couched in politeness, that digs even deeper. But they don't just leave it at that. We also see her kind of private conversations and her insecurities herself. And she delivers so much to this role. In fact, she's the actress that was ported over from this show to Downton Abbey. 
But everyone is similarly invested and absolutely believable, whether they're doing the high society thing or the workers thing. And what's so interesting about that is how when you look into the culture of the servants, how it's just as formal and has just as much pageantry as the upstairs of people of wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- it, like this is something which is such a well-represented uh, script because we have a great central, char- central character played by Kelly McDonald and how she is a new person to the, both the world of the servants and the people they, to which they serve. And the film is so wonderfully effective at doling out all the different rituals that both upstairs and downstairs have to go and deal with. And the detail is so brilliantly conceived. I think they actually had hired historians for uh, for uh, how people were served in those days. Oh, I could make... believe that, yeah. Yeah, and so... Turns out, at breakfast, you serve yourself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And... Inter- and also, the script is really effective of showing just so comprehensive a look at all the different aspects of both the aristocracy and the servant class. Because there are so many dimensions that which you can look. And you get a great sample here, just from people who are, from people who are wealthy to people who are living their like privileged existence off of other people's money to people who've made their money from profiteering off the uh, off the recent wars to how people uh, to how there are several american visitors uh one of which is was is a real person ivor novello who is most famous back at, uh uh today for being in the alfred hitchcock film the lodger but was pointed out in the film that that actually was a bit of a flop <laughs> Well, actually, yeah. a fun fact while looking this up for this podcast is they made a sound remake of The Lodger, and that's the one that was considered oh, a disappointment okay. related to the, <laughs> for, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock film, and that's the one that Maggie Smith is being uh, so critical. Oh, that's about. fun. Yeah. yeah. And Bob Balaban is the American movie producer who's the stereotypically loud American. He's on the phone, is, uh, he's on the phone yelling at Hollywood, and everyone just looks at him like, oh, isn't he curious? That's right. That's right. And, uh, and it's a, a nice payback to, I guess, Opal from the BBC. Right. As he's, <laughs> as he's one of the few people who entertains a set of uh, swear words and filthy language, but then also is, is uh, uh, inanely uh, curious as to how, oh, so this is how people do that. Oh, that's really interesting. No, he's, no this guy's a valet. That's a little different from a butler. <laughs> and so that is yet another perspective. And so there's certain showcase sequences notably one in almost the exact center of the movie where Ivor Novello is trying to regale the upstairs set with uh, some songs that is more or less receptive to different people for different reasons but is very receptive to the servants uh, all of which are shown in uh, wonderful detail as hanging on uh, stairwells and listening from the corner, uh, shadowy corners of rooms and, and even uh, some dancing along to his music. And you get this whole scope 
of both of these both halves of society uh, in a sustained ten minute sequence. That's uh that I find just really really quite wonderful. It's a testament, I think, to the quality of this film that is advertised as a murder mystery that the murder doesn't happen until maybe even more than halfway through, mm-hmm. and we realize we don't really miss it. If there was never a murder in the film, it would still be fascinating because we're watching the dynamics of all these characters and their interaction in this mini world that they've created. And then where the genre deconstruction comes in in this case is when the murder does occur it's still almost a side note. The inspector comes in and much like the police tape in Cookie's Fortune is tolerated (laughs) barely, the interrelationships just continue to become more fascinating because we find out that there are connections we didn't know about between certain characters that, yes, provide clues for the murder, but more importantly, provide more development for these fascinating characters. So true. This is as close as I've seen Altman get to the kind of character arcs and illuminations that John Sales has done in his finest films. The way that uh, certain people uh, have these revelations and the revelations just cause them to not just see more aspects of their personality, but also akin to sales and akin to uh, Altman in, thing, in films like Nashville, illuminates the social structures. The point you made about how, like, the lower class is just as regimented and just has its own order or quote-unquote ways things are done as the upper crust does is really an apt one. And there's a notable moment where one person tries to transition between both worlds only to find that he's not really now accepted in either. Right. <laughs> and so that was, that is really, that is really charmingly depicted. One of my favorites that I just want to bring up in here is a moment, which is a very cool inversion of the I'm easy scene from Nashville where Ever Novello, the actor is held in really high regard as a celebrity from certain servants, one of whom is very, very eager to have his duties to help him get dressed and help him get ready. He gets a chance to see Mm -hmm. him in a various state of undress. Then when he's playing in the piano, Ever Novello is in the showcase scene. If you pay attention to the corner, you will notice that the head butler is one of the ones who's most enthusiastically shuffling on his feet behind the bar and applauding along. So when the head butler says, oh, this, oh, he needs an assistant, there's a great dynamic between him, the guy who was enthusiastically <laughs> wanting, and a third person over who gets to dress him, who gets to dress him. And, and so they all have different motivations for who's going to get to get to dress, to dress this guy. <laughs> but they all have their sort of different levels of affection and right. meaning to do that. Again, the movie has, does this over and over and over and over again. And among all these wonderful character interactions that you can enjoy, you also get the sense of the stratification of the different social classes and the difficulty of one class, like to your point on, salt, on shortcuts, the difficulty for one class to address or even concern themselves with what happens on another class. 
right? Because in this culture, there's really no opportunity to move from downstairs to upstairs. Right. You are generally what your parents are. And that brings a whole nother level, and I'll be vague about it, but parentage becomes both a clue in the mystery and part of the theme of the film. Mm-hmm. And I just want to finalize my praise on this film is that it is a component where the acting across the board gives the movie an exceptional quality. The, the script writing and the way it has a deft touch in illuminating these societies and showing the social constructs they're in because there's also a financial basis on who has money and who doesn't have money, even amongst the aristocracy that becomes an, a component that's addressed in a real deft touch. But this is a case where Altman, where other films, Altman is, intr Altman is intrinsic and his technique directly influences the film's quality. Here is a case where his considerable talent and his unique ability to depict scenes without forcing you to focus on this or that character is a great enhancement. And the actor, the actors match him in saying that this is the environment. You're supposed to let your eyes wander and your mind wander and consider this person or that person and not be just drawn in onto, as you say, the, the mystery, the big mystery story. Whereas other stories just put a collection of varied characters and put their dramas so you wonder who the murderer is. This is one which uses the murder to inform the drama behind those characters. Exactly. And it's just wonderful to see Altman continuing to strive for greatness in his later years. And we'll see if he could reach it again in his next film, The Company, released in 2003. All you gotta do ring the bell Step right up Step right up And step right up Ballerina We're invited behind the scenes of Chicago's acclaimed Joffrey Ballet. There we see the struggles to create a dance from all angles. We see the grueling rehearsals, often from the point of view of Rye, whose star is rising, but also seeks a personal life. Alberto is the company director and leads with a charismatic but firm hand as we see a new ballet unfold in this celebration of dance. I'm going to start by saying that I'm really grateful on for the Directors Club because it gets us this opportunity to make these connections that we never would have done had, had we done these explorations across all these different filmmakers. And when I look at the company, the thing that startles me and really makes me look at uh, several of Altman's other films in context is like, the last thing I was expecting out of an Altman movie it's a Frederick Wiseman movie. <laughs> this is a film that 
very much has this kind of spirit that Frederick Wiseman, a legendary documentary filmmaker known for putting in looks at systems and businesses and looks at the details of how they operate. And we're getting Altman's take on it. And it's a pretty interesting to not just compare that, but also to see that throughout his history, He's been exploring out these systems. He's now, now actually, I said earlier that he did a quadrology. No, it's a quintology. Both in The Player, Tanner, Nashville, Ready to Wear, and now The Company. He's cast his filmmaking lens on a aspect of society and wants to give that an, an, a, a very thorough and intricate exploration. But here he's doing it in an almost purely observational way, which is not his style. Altman's known for being the actor's director, for being interested in characters and their idiosyncrasies and letting that drive the narrative. But it absolutely blows me away that this late in his career, Altman is a very old man by now. He's on his second heart. You imagine that at some point you're going to get set in your ways, but no, right near the end of his career, Altman is going to do a film in a completely different style than he's done before. Because instead of the actor focus where we follow these characters through all their idiosyncrasies and moments of their lives to learn more about them. And then in the case of the institutions we talked about to learn about them through the characters here, we have a documentary like view of the institution itself. And when we see character development, it's almost just out of the side of the eye. So we get to witness a lot of ballet and a lot of what is behind the ballet. Key to this is using the actual Joffrey ballet. The, with, with the exception of Nev Campbell, who does have a dance background, but is primarily an actor and had to learn her dances, the dancers are all professional Joffrey ballet dancers. And it shows. They are setting an amazing example of what ballet can be. And Altman is capturing this with really a sense of wonder as we see ballets that are serious or others that are sexy and others that are just elaborate costume pieces. And then we see just the drudgery, pain, and hard work that comes into creating all this. I think of all the films that he, that Altman has made that are about the process. This is the one that most shows that he is concerned and interested in the results mm -hmm. of it. Like um, even the songs in Nashville, no matter how good or effective they are, they're there for the story and the, they're there for the story and the characters. Whereas in this film, I get a sense that Altman is trying to present these, hey, these guys are doing something really quite special. What is involved in putting this very special thing together? It's basically, uh, I guess the closest analogy I would say right now is that's how the great jazz of Kansas City, if you actually saw how the jazz was being composed and rehearsed, mm -hmm. something, something like that. But I find that the film is, Altman is putting a lot of value on 
what are these dances? And and unlike in, in Ready to Wear, I think he comes really close to pulling it off. I myself, personally, I am not a dance fan at all. The idea that you go there and see people dancing and it's not a club where you're meant to <laughs> dance along is is something I'm not very familiar with. But if I don't fully go, wow, that stuff is amazing, I'm still very impressed by the technical ability and the complexity to just have all these bodies in motion. And something that Altman seems to share is impressive the impressiveness as continually you see the shots of the audience viewing this stuff and shots from the side as they, as, a ne- as they have to navigate their fellow dancers and these gigantic lights just off stage to get into stage in exactly the right position. It's also very pleasurable uh, for us that this is a film shot in Chicago. Yep. So we get to see some of our great Chicago landmarks, but most importantly, a sequence filmed in Grant Park, which is a, a dance in, once again... A thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. So we're a watching the choreography, but suspense is also being built because we don't know how long it's going to be till the downpour, and we see some umbrellas come up. But the audience is staying. The audience is going to watch. And when Nev Campbell comes up to take her bow in the pouring rain, uh, it's it's really a great moment. Oh yeah! At that moment. Altman reaches some territory that's usually uh, being approached by Terrence Malick. Because it's clear to me when the, that their dance is combined with all the different specks of dust and dirt and leaves and the rain, eventually the rain itself, is combining and interacting with the lights and being presented in a way with their movements on stage to literally make a kind of musical fantasia mm-hmm. involving the terrible <laughs> Chicago weather. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to give a lot of credit to what Malcolm McDowell does here because as acclaimed as he is for his earlier, more psychotic roles, as far as late period McDowell, I, I think this is his most interesting performance. He is based it off an actual director of the Joffrey Ballet. A lot of his dialogue are things that he has observed or been told about this director actually saying. But he has such an interesting manner about him where we can really see how this guy got in this position and how he relates to the dancers. He calls everyone baby, no matter who they are, Mm -hmm. and how he reacts to any kind of challenge to his authority. Usually there wouldn't be because people won't even sit in his chair. Right. That they're, they, they just know this is the guy. But mm-hmm. when one of the uh, key dancers who's at a level that can challenge him does, he, he just looks at him quizzically and goes, are you arguing with me? <laughs> like it's never happened before. Yeah. And then when another dancer ends up in a conflict with her director... He just conveniently walks out of the room so he doesn't have to take a side. Yes. There's all kinds of like little internal office politics being observed here as well. Yes. There's also a really cool scene where he is getting an award from the uh, Italian-American society uh, for achievements. And... And he makes a, a great point effectively ragging on them to say, yeah... 
this was the community that would insult me and hated me and had nothing but disdain for me loving music and dance. So I'm waving this award around so that no one else gets treated the same way. <laughs> it's a great case of showing that behind the value that he places on just the music and being able to make a good performance and have a successful show for his own pride, but there's also a kind of way that he has, even at his age and his stature, he's got something to prove. The other uh, name actor in the film is James Franco, who is uh, Nev Campbell's love interest. And this is very much a side note to the film. Their relationship is viewed almost long distance. They don't have any real dialogue. I think it's there mostly to establish the idea of how you can have a life as a dancer and still have a personal life. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's in the right. It's in the service of the one of the big messages on the film. I think their most notable interaction is when they just have a mo as New Year arrives and neither of them can be with the other because they're both busy at their jobs. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of a lovely moment where Nev returns to the apartment to find that he's cooked. He works as a cook and he's tended up cooking a nice dinner for them, but it's just has a dwindling candle as he's long since passed out over a long day. Right. <laughs> and so it's, it's very touching, but touching in the very general way of like how hard it can be to go and connect in a, in a, in a general way. But, Yes, their re their relationship shows less personality than Jeff Goldblum hooking up with Shelley Duvall in Nashville. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> even though they have less less screen time, but even when they're when they're on there, they they display parts of their parts of their personalities that this film seems to not be that concerned about. And also, I kind of think that there is a way where whether through the needs of showing that of getting the access to a great dance troupe. Or just an interest in the performance and putting the performance together at the expense of everything else. It does leave it at the expense of the characterizations that Altman was so well known for. And there's several moments where I feel maybe a larger movie could have expanded on it. Like, because for a moment, there seems to be a younger member of the group who, unlike Campbell, who's sort of set in her position, he has to go and deal with the more even more hard scrabble conditions as he has to share an apartment with what looks to be 10 people <laughs> which uh is not impeding the sexual activity of 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 those guys by the way and so he's very much like of a newbie akin to like the kelly mcdonald character in gosford park i felt but then he sort of disappears in a similar way before a rehearsal starts you see a solitary female figure doing stretches and once people are showing up she immediately goes into a bathroom and then comes back dressed in business attire, and you later find out she's part of the administrative group. And so there I, I get these hints of why people are still in that position and, and what, what they still want to pursue about the dance. And then there's a development about a person injured. And I guess another film could have dealt with what does that mean. And this film, I believe, gives like sort of scant attention to it. Very much so, but it, it's it's also very much part of its strategy because it would have been the easiest thing in the world to follow those dramatic cues and make a more conventional film. It could it could have been a great film, but I I really value the guts that it took to just be uncompromising about 
what they wanted to show here and for Altman to again earn his maverick rating and make a movie completely on his own terms. Mm. Well, I think one of the really most maverick-type aspects of this film is that it reminds me of uh, one of Frederick Weissman's documentary films, a film about, also about putting on a show of a sort, uh, <laughs> his film Crazy Horse, about the most famous strip club in Europe, and they attempt to have an I- show, make a, put together an international show. It's kind of, I think, really ironic that if you watch that, the Frederick Weissman film has a lot more drama as there's backstabbings <laughs> and betrayals and so on than the Robert Altman movie. And yet Robert Altman has, by virtue of what you describe as his dedication to the subject, it's actually both a more faithful depiction of the mechanics of putting a show together and a more of a celebration of being able to, of all this hard effort being used to put something remarkable on screen. So it's pretty crazy how the documentary film has more drama than the drama, <laughs> which has more vermilicitude than the documentary. <laughs> a very cool twist at the tail end of an already remarkable career. And from that, Robert Ullman had one more movie to share with us. His take on a long-existing property of its own, A Prairie Home Companion, released in 2006. It's the final broadcast of this old-timey show filmed live in front of a studio audience, a radio program hosted by Garius and Keeler. Keeler is joined by various folk music, country, and gospel singers who we follow both on stage and off, as well as some of his fictional creations brought to life as characters. Well, here's where I have to issue a, a bias alert which is that I am really not a fan of a Prairie Home Companion. I'm not that familiar with it. I've, I've, I listened to a little bit of it after watching the film and I observed what was depicted. There's a certain vibe that Garrison Keeler and company are really going for that a lot of people really love that is just escaping me to be to be uncharitable it seems like the kind of thing that would play very well in Branson Missouri <laughs> and <laughs> here's the thing the people involved in the film are incredibly talented uh robert altman is not doing anything wrong as a director as far as i could tell the the actors include Meryl Streep and Lily Tomlin and Woody Harrelson and John C. Riley. You've got all kinds of great actors on stage, and just like the company was very dedicated to depicting something, this is also very much about recreating an experience of this radio show, except because it's a radio show that kind of rubs me the wrong way. I'm, I find myself 
unable to really get into the film. Mm-hmm. I kind of get into the film more than you, though I do share some of your annoyance by the... There's something about the folksy with a capital F charm of the ra- of the radio program that I feel is just a little off-putting. But I really kind of take it as a tail end of a career kind of reckoning with, hey, what are you doing making films? Mm-hmm. It's I feel it's really, really similar to a late period Akira Kurosawa film called Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, where the, the ideas of the films and the motivations of your filmmaking come from and what do you want to do by putting on a show and just also the interactions between the real characters and then the fictional creations and the way where at a certain point maybe you get an understanding that you have people that you've created that will surpass your own existence and that's kind of a feeling about it's a very um, elegy-type feeling that I get out of Prairie Home Companion, as, as also I get a feeling of a bit of muting. I look at the kind of sentiment, especially the slightly kind of overheated and over-syrupy one that this presents, and I look at this as not something that... Altman would have touched with a 10-foot pole even 10 <laughs> years earlier without having characters O.C. and Stiggs bust through a wall to try and wreck said party. <laughs> it's going okay enough, but it needs more Hawkeye arriving on a Jeep or, or, even a, or even a McCabe. Something to go and shake things up. And nothing ever does in, uh, in this film. It's kind of like an exhalation on film to just go put a career like a light on and set it down on the end table and say, okay, that's it. I I think it's an example of how often films can be the, in the service of their subject matter. Just in his last two films, you have such a different energy level based on the two different art forms being depicted. Mm. So now now there there's, there's stuff here that, that works. I particularly liked the Meryl Streep and Lily Tomlin dynamic as these two sisters in a sicking group that used to have more sisters Mm -hmm. and trying to, uh, bring their uh, Meryl Streep's daughter, Lindsay Lohan, uh, prior to her breakdown into the, uh, in, into the family business. I, I guess what I cared for less is Kevin Klein and his character, Guy Noir, who is yeah. supposed to be some kind of fictionalized detective, but is completely tamed from the entire noir world he's for the being precious part figure. of this family show. He's, he's yeah. the keen painting or precious moments version of, of a hard boiled detective. <laughs> right, right. That's kind of what it is. He's, and it doesn't help that his most defining characteristic is, is clumsily inserting himself in the screen and, and, and uh, interacting with objects in a way that now evokes Mastrian Tony's, um, uh, La Dopey Vita performance <laughs> in, uh, in Ready to Wear. Not a huge fan on that. I just have a sense of very wistful disappointment on here because 
while Cookie's Fortune earns its sentiment and delight through the clear empathy that characters have towards each other, Prairie Home Companion, to me, comes across where the wistful delight is given to you in a vat, and you're, it's sort of doled out to me, parceled out to me. And that's kind of the last thing that I would have expected about Altman. And unfortunately, it is the last thing we got out of Robert Altman. You can't live forever, and Robert Altman has been giving us amazing and daring work for more decades than uh, many of our favorite directors has, have even been alive. And what's fascinating about looking at late-stage Altman is really how, till almost the very end, he kept that kind of questing urgency and stubbornness that we so associate with him. And even though most of his most acclaimed films are the ones we talked about in part one, I think we'd agree that there's at least two more masterpieces here, although we might disagree on which, mass which films right. those are. And even when we're not talking about classics, we are talking about a singular vision. Yes, I believe Altman, even through part one, has entered the pantheon of people who you can ask five people and they could probably name you four different excellent films to which they would say is their favorite. And you can talk on the remarkable qualities of each one of them. And I have to say that for me, it was a real pleasure to look at a guy who had such a varied body of work. And how the things that had interested him and the ways that he presented these things just wor worked or, or didn't work, for that matter, across all these different genres and styles and things that he focused on. It was one heck of a journey. And we hope that you guys listen in, uh, liked our uh, journey through the many, many worlds of Robert Altman. If you want to give us your impressions on what you think of his work or, or what you think of our commentary on his work, you can feel free to give the Directors Club an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club can be found in multiple places across the internet, from iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, now searchable on YouTube with Directors Club Podcast and on Twitter at DC Podcast. And our episodes are also available, including our first, our look at the first half of Altman's career at our website, directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you on another episode of the Directors Club. Honestly, I would have liked to see more of the helicopters.
because and uh, not just because it ties into Mash and to uh, the climax of Osi and Stiggs. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just make another, a bit of a crazy connection because how you talked about the helicopters. The second to last image you see is the helicopter pilot talking about a helicopter. He's off on another, off on another mission. And it harkens back to me of what I think is the coolest part of MASH. When Hawkeye arrives with us in the, in the audience in the movie driving a Jeep. And then he leaves driving a Jeep and they say, wait, did he stole it? No, it's the Jeep. He came in. <laughs> so we've made a bit of a helicopter, transi- <laughs> a helicopter transition into and out of this, this uh, land using a different kind of vehicle. 